homegrown heroes. We football fans absolutely love them. They grow up on our doorstep, hopefully in the shadow of the county ground. They get taken to games as nippers and fall in love with the club. They stand alongside us as brothers or sisters in metaphoric arms, appreciating the same heroes we do out on the pitch, breathing the same air as us. Very occasionally, these folk go on to join the actual club, a dream that every one of us will at some point in our fandom have had, whether it be scoring or saving goals, agreeing major sponsorship deals, hosting fellow fans in hospitality, or coaching and picking the team. Getting your opportunity to apply yourself at Swindon Town Football Club is a moment for every Swindon Town fan to be proud of if they got the chance. Well, tonight's guest has enjoyed an altogether mercurial route to his current position as Director of Football of Swindon Town Women's Football Club, newly appointed. And I'm delighted he's joining us tonight to discuss it. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, I give you Tom Thomas. W. Hartley. How are we, Tom? <laughs> Hi, Mark. Mercurial. What a word. I've never had such an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, like I say, some people get a route into our football club, Tom. Your route has been somewhat spectacular. It's a little unorthodox, it might be said, particularly at the beginning. Yeah, it has been a journey, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, there's been a few different roles with the club over the years, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and we, we look forward to getting into those with you, Tom. But before we crack on with that, I'll introduce you to my co-host tonight on the Tom Broadbent Lounge, Tom. Uh, first up is Joe. Good evening, Joe. How are you? Good evening, mate. How's things? Yeah, not so bad, mate. Full of head cold, if truth be known, but uh, dosed up to the max and full of water as well. So that'll have to do me. Um, Chris, good evening. How are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It looks like you've got wired last week. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, mate. I, in my head, I feel like your biopic looks. <laughs> yeah, like a Frenchman. Yes, indeed that, indeed that. And last but not least, of course, we have Nathan. Nathan, good evening, buddy. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, doing my best to avoid Love Island at the moment. So I'm happy to, very happy to be here. <laughs> well, you're you're very very welcome, and gentlemen, I'm I'm sure you know metaphorical greetings from yourselves to Tom. Um, so listen, Tom, it was only a couple of weeks ago, mate, we were talking about you. Were you privy to the words that were being spoken by none other than Nick Watkins, former CEO? Ears, ears must have been burning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I missed out on that conversation. But yeah, the, the kind of fate feels, uh, feels like it's happening at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, again, we'll get on to the, to, the, to the story specific. In fact, you'll probably tell us it yourself in your own terms. But um, I thought we'd start off right at the beginning with you, Tom. So clearly a lifetime as a Swindon Town fan. So cast your mind right the way back as far as you possibly can. What's your earliest memory of following Swindon Town Football Club? Mm, great question. Well, do you know what? I tell everybody that my, my first game was going to see Swindon Leicester 93 playoff final. That kind of infamous afternoon where we get promoted up to the Premier League. Oh, um, what a way to start, Tom. It, I know, but it, that, that's a a bit of a fib that wasn't my first game the first game and I, I don't know if any of your listeners might remember this it was that season and for my vague recollection it was a mid-season friendly against sporting lisbon and oh remember it well louis could, and all. yeah and bobby robson was their manager now 
I'm I'm ashamed to say that at the time, seven and a half years old, I didn't really know who Bobby Robson was. Um, but my dad, who was with me, certainly did, and was kind of that kind of dad thing where he has had two hand push in in my back to go and get his autograph. Um, and I kind of stumbled up to him with my program and kind of just like flung it in his direction. And he kind of said, uh, "Son, you can't sign an autograph without a pen, and you can't play football without a football." Now. <laughs> infamous words i mean to this day i've i mean it makes sense i don't know how um how meaningful they are but i'll always remember that I, I once had a race with bobby robson although i don't think he was particularly impressed with it up the stairs of the um uh of, of a central london hotel just before the pfa awards tom believe it or not and, <laughs> I, and i didn't realize how rude and patronizing i was being when i realized i was walking alongside sir bobby and i just sort of turned to my left and said race you to the top and he didn't take on it that I got a, a oh. proper grunt and I and I was like, yeah, probably a little bit disrespectful saying that the and an, an aging former England manager that's pretty much done everything in life I could only dream of doing. But um I don't do you know what? I remember the game, Tom, but I don't remember the result. I remember I mean there is a wonderful historic picture of Glenn Hoddle and Bobby Robson pitch side of that game. Um is there is there a chance that you might have just been a little bit out of shot? Yeah, I don't think I'm in the background of that one. <laughs> somewhere no but what I do remember from the game though I, I don't remember the score I I do recall we let in a lot of goals and the county ground was quite quiet and um, wanting to kind of get into the swing of things I remember bellowing come on you reds at the top of my voice to like the, the looks of people around me in the Arkle stand like how dare he shout out when we're losing so badly <laughs> well that was a precursor of things to come no doubt when it comes to uh, cheerleadering crowds Tom and again we'll, I think we'll come on to that um, so who? So thinking that if you think about sort of like history as a town fan, Tom, who would have been who? Who, who do you regard as your favourite players? Um, whether that just be sort of you know just starry-eyed sort of superstars, or or obviously with your coaching eye, I guess you look at football for a, a slightly different lens. But who who are you, who are your town heroes? Well, there's one name that's top of the list, and without a shadow of a doubt, Jan Agafiotov was just the living legend for me. I remember being so upset the day he left. Um, but yeah, I, I was mascot when I was 10. I think, yeah, it was my 10th birthday. And I remember meeting Jan and, and like he scored in the game. Oh, it's phenomenal. Like he, he was just so good. And I wish he'd started scoring sooner during that season. Cause you never know if maybe things, things might've been different in the Premier League. If, if Jan would have found form prior to Christmas, um so he he he's a standout he'll always kind of live long in the memory um glenn hoddle to an extent but i didn't really see him play that much it was more more his um his legacy that he left at the club was something that i'll always remember but when, with that game at wembley and again like i'm sure lots of people listening will remember um i think it was Moncur who kind of had that cheeky little back heel on the edge of the area and then then hoddle strike into the bottom corner to open the scoring just before half time against leicester like moments like that, like from a player like that, just will, will always kind of live on in the memory. So Jan, Glenn, that they would be people who who have always um, <laughs> will always be kind of heroes to me. I remember Shay Given as well because he was on loan, wasn't he, around that time? He was. Um, and I, I just again like being a kid, and, and I remember getting his autograph on one of the open days they used to have at the county ground before the start of the season. And um, yeah, just just I think he kind of was wanted inspired me to want to play in goal which lasted for about six months and then I decided it was just far too um far too risky for me to play in goal 
but but yeah, he he was he was again another one that that I remember idolising as a young fan. Yeah, I think it was quite clear to any sort of right-minded Swindon fan that um, that Shea Given was going to be like well, was marked for superstardom. Um, you know, as early as his Celtic days, sort of certainly speaking as a goalkeeper, he was somebody that was being sort of spoken about as he this kid is going to be outstanding. And obviously, went on that incredible career after keeping a ridiculous number of clean sheets for us as well. It might be added. Um, what about um, so managers? Tom, I mean, at that time, obviously, you've already, you've already mentioned Glenn, um, but at, at that time, were there, you know, sort of moving sort of forward? Who, who over the over time has caught your eye in the dugout? I don't know if this is for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. To to be totally honest, I, I think there's been a few managers over the years who have certainly caught my eye because of the passion that they demonstrated for their role as head coach. Um, Steve McMahon was certainly one of those and like that dying breed of kind of player manager as well I remember I think he got sent off in a few of the games that he played in Um, and it was around about the time when I was starting to be a ball boy at the club so you kind of I got a bit closer to it and just just that that kind of just outside the changing room smell of deep heat and kind of some loud scouse voice kind of swearing and effing and blinding the players so wouldn't necessarily say it was for all the right reasons but he sticks in the mind um as the years have gone on, I was thinking about this earlier, actually. I used to better reel off all the town managers, like one after the other. I struggle now. I really do. I feel like there have been so many recently. Um, Paolo, I mean, Paolo Di Canio was just like this, this wave of energy. I, I remember um, Nick Watkins saying something along the lines of that his management style was management by hand grenade, um, mm. which I thought was a great way to put it. But I felt like as, as a supporter and like taking off my coaching hat, and all the other kind of lenses being involved with Swindon, I did enjoy like just his passion and how he would, how he would kind of look like he would do anything for for that team and that club. And look, let's face it, some of the stuff that Paolo probably did wasn't that helpful, but um, I think he gave us a season and a half that will will always be remembered by town fans as being eventful. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Tom. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, he he, I guess, would argue as a coach that it's his job to kind of push for the for the absolute best he can for his team, and if that meant constantly pushing for more funds for better players, um, you know, so be it, rightly or wrongly, you know, um, there should be people that are able to say no and keep him in check. I think. Um, you know, there's there is also, um, it, you know, we have this discussion quite regularly when we discuss Paolo. If you consider the number of players that are still playing at a really good level, um, or players that have maybe retired and sort of gone into the tail end of their career, they 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 tend to say they were terrified of him at the time, but they cite him as one of the greatest coaches that they ever worked for. Um, I mean, is there? Um, <laughs> I'm guessing, but management by hand grenade is not something you subscribe to, Tom, in your new role. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not the ethos that I'm going to uh, live by or try and influence others with. No, not not quite my style, that one. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so how about, are there any, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Glenn Hoddle goal um, at Wembley, Tom. Was there, were there any other goals that sort of, whether it be really early ones that stick in your mind? Um, that you remember, sort of absolute rip snorters or otherwise? Um, two come to mind immediately. And I, if, you know, if I've thought about this for a day, I'd probably have a longer list. Um, I'll go back to Wembley and that game and Craig Maskell 
I think it was the second goal that Craig Maskell scored. Um, and and he's it was the sound more than the finish. How it it just this crisp crack off the back post when the ball struck it. I, I remember it vividly. I, when you watch it back on TV, you can just hit, you can hear it. Um, there was something really magnetic about that. Um, so that that goal and that moment was special. And in the Premier League as well, um, home to Man United when we drew two all. I think we were the only team that season to put four goals past Man United. And Luke Nyholt, it took a deflection, and you can see it on the replays. But at, in the moment, at the time, like that fizz of a shot from just outside of the penalty area, which kind of went up and quite central and just went past Schmeichel. That was yeah, what a and, goal. A pro- and a proper old school sort of, I don't know how you describe that hand motion. But it sort of seemed to go with Luke's hair. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a delightfully Euro trash celebration from the boy Nihal. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's funny, isn't it? I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but I can remember things like this. It's crazy. Um, oh, it, but, com- it comes to us all, Tom. <laughs> do, you, do you know what the other the other one that comes to mind was? I think it was against Bristol City, and Rory Fallon scoring that that kind of overhead kick from again around the edge of the eighteen yard box at the town mm-hmm. end. Um, again, yeah, what a moment. What what a brilliant kind of unscripted, just fantastic moment that will live on. And believe it or not, that was my son's very first Swindon Town goal. But, um, the first goal that was conceded whilst he was on the planet, Tom. So, uh, yes, a very, very satisfying goal, given the opposition, given its position right in front of the town end. Yeah, delightful yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, OK, so what, I mean, are there any... Are there any sort of performances, sort of team or otherwise, sort of individual performances that that really stick out for you, Tom? Again, I mean, I'd be interested to know whether, obviously, there are games that you've seen with your your sort of coaching head on where you've picked out a particular performance based on something that, you know, maybe an untrained eye um, might not have seen or indeed from, from where you're a kid, anything that really inspired you? Yeah, good question. And do you know what, since going through my kind of coaching journey, and the more I've kind of from from becoming a level three, so like a, a B license coach, and more recently finishing the A license, like you can't you can't watch football in the same way. It, it's almost like the, the curse of knowledge. You can't you can't learn some of this stuff. So you're forever watching the game with a slightly different head on. Um, it's hard to pull out individual performances or, or or specific games. And look, I appreciate, and I know that we'll get onto it later on in the in the discussion about kind of. The, uh, ben Garner moving on and things, but um, I, I've really enjoyed watching how tactically dynamic Town have been at times this season. Like from from starting off and playing in in the three five two, and and the way they used to have been setting up in terms of like from at the back being lopsided, pushing on the I think it was the right right sided centre back to then go and create an o- overload on one side. Um, and then how when when we switched into to a four three three later in the season, just like how how we were able to like really exploit with the pace of McCurdy and Barry, I just thought there was something brilliant about getting the best out of your playing squad and getting the best out of your players, and also being open to saying, well, do you know what I th- we set out that three five two in this shape and this this formation was our game model and our style for the season being, but being open to saying, well, we think there's a better way and adapting through. Um, I don't necessarily think every coach would do that because there's a bit of kind of like, well, no, this is my idea. This is my plan. I don't want to change and move away from it. So I know we haven't had the result we wanted at the end of the season. And 
I think people will probably have mixed feelings about like some of the performances the town team have had this season. But I, I just thought some of the movement across the midfield three, the way that they use the wings, um, there's been moments which I think have just looked brilliant. And reflecting back, I mean, football in League Two is so different now to, to what it was 10, 15 years ago. The standard is just exponentially higher. Um, so I, I think like it's hard, actually, when you look at where Swindon are in terms of the league structure and the pyramid and, and where we finish, and you compare on previous seasons, it's really difficult to compare because the standard is just different. The level of player in that league is different and the standard of coaching is so much better. Um, I think I think it's th- there's been loads of progression, even though some of the outcomes we've been after aren't aren't there at the moment. Yeah. I think I think you're probably right. I mean, there's been, I mean, certainly from my perspective, and without me to answer my own <clears throat> my own question, I've been um, I've been absolutely blown away, as I think most town fans have this season, by the levels of um, consistency and technical excellence of um, of Louis Reed in particular. Um, and it's it's been no surprise to me that when young Mister Reed's been missing from certain games, um, you know the kind of plan went out the window a touch. Um, is he a, is he a player that sort of sticks out for you, Tom? Yeah, totally. I, I think like the way the way he plays and moves and his awareness of space and and then just that the, the speed of decision making and and his adaptability as a player stands out massively. Like and yeah. and the potential someone like him has got to just continue to improve with the right coaching and the right level of challenge and, and being stretched in the right way. But yeah, he, he's, he's stood out leaps and bounds throughout the season. And I think, again, like it, it's hard, isn't it, when you've got a team where um, you've got that kind of balance of players who are on loan, players who are contracted to the club. There's loads of different motivation for being there. And you know that players who stand out now will get interest from other clubs and be tempted off in, off in lots of different directions. But um, for players like him to be here and for us to have the experience of seeing him be able to do that, I think is is awesome, really. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Well, you, you've seen an awful lot of things, Tom. I'm just going to take you back. Now, there's a, there's a good... There, it's probably a good thing, Tom, that our show is post-Watershed because we're probably about to... Um, you know, if we're thinking about the school age here, we're about to we're about to burst a few bubbles. We're about to ruin a few dreams, um, and some of our listeners won't be aware of a former role where you really, you really, you really got your teeth in, or you rather your beak into the county ground, Tom. Now, I, I, you know, it sort of breaks my heart to sort of even open this topic of conversation in many ways. Um, but Tom, would you would you like to sort of tell us a little bit about the story behind how you kind of made a name for yourself at the county ground? Oh, do I have to? Yeah, I probably do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do now. Yeah. So, th- th- I mean, th- this has been like a part of my life that um, will always be there now. And I look back with great fondness. But yeah, for 13 long seasons from 2003, um, I was the infamous Rockin' Robin. Yes, uh, you were! <laughs> you finally admit it live on air! <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It cannot be scrubbed from the record anymore. <laughs> oh, bless you. Bless you. So, look, tell, tell us all about it, Tom. How does one become Rocky Robin back in the day? Oh, back in the day. Well, simple as Swindon put an advert in the programme uh, in search of next mascot, apply here. And you had to be 16 and you had to be over a certain height. And I wasn't 16, but I was over a certain height. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just apply. And, I, I, you know, I'd sat there. And at that point, 
as much as I'd enjoyed the football, I, I was interested in just like what was going on. And I, I always watched Rock and Robin and Funky Fledgling, who was his um his sidekick at the time. I thought I could do better than that. That that, that oh he could do this, he could do that, he could be a bit more cheeky. So I applied. Um, and got a call from someone at the club, went in for an interview, like, can you believe? Um, I put on, like, the smartest clothes I had. Turns out nobody else had um, registered any interest in the vacant position, and uh, they offered me the the role on, like, a, a little trial period for, for a couple of games. Um, yeah, and then the rest really feels like history. So I, it was my first game was at home to Peterborough. I can't remember the exact season. Danny Invincible scored um, in the game, which I think it was, I think it kept us up. We had Stoke away in the next game. In fact, gives people an idea of the season. Yeah. Um, and, and like Peterborough bought their mascot for the game. And I remember we had a penalty shootout. And one thing I'll always be proud of is as Rockin' Robin, I've never lost a penalty shootout against another mascot. <laughs> so um, if it was an unofficial Guinness World Records for mascot achievements, then then that's probably where I should feature. Outstanding. <laughs> Tom, did you ever take part in the mascot derby? <laughs> mascot Grand National, yeah. Do you know what? There were a few um, variations over the years, but um, there was a small period of time when it was like big. There, there would be hundreds, literally hundreds of mascots come and take part. And the first year I did it, so it was over in Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire, um, like someone had flown in from yep. Italy, a mascot had flown in from the States. There were page three girls running in it. It was absolutely crazy. Um, and the coverage that, that that race got. So if those of you who are listening don't know, Mascot Grand National, it's a furlong at Huntingdon Racecourse, which is like the final 110 metres with two foot high jumps to go over and like a two foot high jump is formidable when you're wearing mascot boots um and yeah on that <laughs> that first race when i did it the guy who won it was just in a tracksuit and a fox's hat or fox oh, come on a mascot it, he is not <laughs> i know i know like and and like like so against the spirit like um Anyway, like it turned out that the guy was an Olympic hurdler. Not that he needed to be an Olympic hurdler to win against a load of blokes dressed up in mascot costumes. Um, but but yeah, it was it was all over the newspapers the next day, and it was all kicking off. And I, I just remember, oh my god, what what strange world have I got myself into here? <laughs> <laughs> so Nick Watkins spoke very eloquently about the morning he uh, met you at the end of your garden path, Tom. And uh, I think you were on your way to your interview. Yeah. Um, and, and the club were in peril at the time. Do you have any recollections of that? Of that uh, bump Vaguely, into? yeah. So Nick and I were kind of next door neighbours or kind of lived across the road from each other. And um, yeah, be, being kind of 15 years old and diehard Swindon, this was like a, a massive notch to, to be able to come and do this. Um, I felt incredibly proud to be as close to representing the club as I think I ever would be. Um, so yeah, I, I was very proud to tell Nick about um, embarking on this uh, on this journey as as the mascot. So Chris, Joe, and Nathan, I'm going to bring you three in just at this stage. Have a little bit of fun. Do you have any Do you have any recollections, you three gentlemen, of any 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 rocky robbing misbehaviour over the years that uh, you uh, you hold particularly close to your heart? Well, well, I I live too far away. I think from from generally what I've been to going for home games. So I think it's over to Joe and his lack of moles. <laughs> yes. So molars, Joe. Do you have, do you have any do you have any recollections, Joe, of uh, Rocky Robin misbehaving over the years? I'm trying to think of a particular moment. Obviously, 
most games you'd get him over in front of the away fans, giving it the cup in the ears, and you know, just generally trying to wind up some some trouble. I can't. I'm trying to think of a specific moment, but I'm struggling. Nathan, was it, help was me. It, was, was it Rovers or Exeter last season where he, he young? Oh, clearly, it wasn't Tom, but Rocky Robin was on um, was on splendid form, enjoying a, a goal for the town at the expense of the away fans. There was a cracking photo of it where they're just completely dumbfounded, and he's just standing there cupping the old wings to the ears. Amazing! What Amazing. A, what a place to be in! What a role to to have! What a professional do you do you have any do you have any stories, Tom? Have you got any tales of um of, of interactions with fans home or away that stick into your mind? Oh my god, how long have we got? What well, one of the <laughs> what, it's funny, like nobody can remember anything, but I've got fifteen things written down on a piece of paper in front of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um one memory that lives long is uh Brighton away in the playoff semi-final, which was not the best of nights. Um and it was when Brighton were playing at the old kind of Withdean Stadium, which had the running track around it. Mm. And I went out on the pitch in the suit before the game when the players were warming up, as per the status quo, like every week at the county ground. Now, a little bit cheeky, I s- smashed two of the Brighton warm-up footballs over the back of the stand, um, <laughs> which didn't go down that well. And there was a steward on the side of the pitch kind of beckoning, beckoning me over. So I kind of go over and he's like, can you take your head off? And I kind of shook my head at him. Like mascot rule number one, never take your head off in public. Mascot rule number two, never speak to anybody. Uh, don't use your voice. So This is the way. It's a little yeah, bit Mandalorian, Tom, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, usually I'm letting you into a whole new cult-like world. Um, anyway, so we, we, uh, we kind of went off some kind of back room, kind of away from the pitch took my head off and he's like look you can't go on the pitch it's for players and officials only clearly you are not a player you are not an official I'm glad he pointed that out um you're gonna have to leave the stadium because you've run onto the playing surface (laughs) whoa 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 Uh, look if you'd have told me that I wouldn't have gone on the pitch he didn't mention the footballs which I was kind of panicking about um and he said look I was like, I, look, I won't go back on. I'll just stick near the town fans and, and I won't be any trouble. He's like, are you, are you arguing with me? I was like, no, I'm not arguing. I'm just stating my case and saying sorry. He's like, look, if you're, if you're not willing to leave, then there's a policeman over there who's been briefed and he can take you out of the stadium. So would you like rather leave with him or leave on your own? I was like, oh, God. So I kind of left on my own and they wouldn't let me get changed. So I was stood in the car park with thousands of Brighton fans streaming in 20 minutes before kickoff, dressed as Rockin' Robin. Like, oh my God, like, <laughs> all these things were running through my mind, like, what the hell is going to happen? The mean-spirited subs, Tom. I know, I know. And that, that was back at the time when uh, Willie Carson was chairman. And um, my buddy who worked at the club at the time, Chris Tanner, uh, which again, I'm sure you know him, Mark, he, he saw it happen from a distance and spotted me in peril out in the car park and, and came and found a way of rustling me back into the stadium, getting me changed and sneaking me back in with the town fans. But yeah, that was that was uh, an interesting, <laughs> precarious moment. So um, obviously a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, what a stint, Tom. Like, what was it you said? 12, 13 odd years as Rocky mm-hmm. Robin. But mm-hmm. what's, um, I mean, that's testimonial sort of time, surely. That's an incredible stint. Uh, I mean, surely that you're the record holder. You must be in that suit. 
Oh, in that suit, yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's been, it was so. I go to football with my dad, Terry, and and we've been going together season tickets for thirty years. And bless him for that thirteen year period, uh, Terry would be the the unlucky person helping me get into the Robin costume. It was a two person job, like before every game. So poor Terry would be sat in the stand, um, uh, kind of for, from half past one, waiting for the game to start, while I prance around on the pitch. Um, but yeah, so when I finished, like, I kind of started watching and, and um, being up in the in the stand with him all the time. And like, I noticed over the last two or three seasons that Rockin' Robin has changed height about half a dozen times. Um, it, it's <laughs> clearly uh, clearly been a role that's been hard to keep someone in for any period of time. Yes, I, w- I would say you're probably right. But did you? Okay, so we're going to sort of start talking about the kind of you know the slightly more serious side of your job now, Tom. Because obviously you're making a brilliant career for yourself in um, in coaching. So mm-hmm. when you was there ever a concern? Like, because I don't want to use the word sort of typecast, but when you when you sort of perform that kind of role in and around a football club, um, there was there. A, did you ever feel that there was a risk that people would just sort of have you down as the you know the guy that's there for the banter um, <laughs> and and a personality that you know you're going to struggle to take this guy seriously? Like, was there was there ever a, a any kind of transition like that for you? Uh, yeah, maybe. Like, I, I still think about it now, actually. So at the time when I was rocking Robin, I was leaving sixth form, and. Um, ended up during that in that duration of uh, starting to work full-time for the football association so it's quite a quite a mismatch between working for the fa and being a football mascot um and they almost felt like quite separate separate parts of my life um and my coaching journey started at swindon as well everything seems to start at the inception is swindon but um i worked in the kind of community foundation with john and clive at the time and that group and did my work experience there and started to get my experience and then when the Rockin' Robin era came in, my coaching was elsewhere, if you like. But yeah, I think there was almost a, a, a fear to an extent in the back of my mind that people probably didn't get the whole picture of who I was because they'd see me between one and four o'clock on a Saturday um, doing a pre-match hacker and thought, oh, that's Tom Hartley. He's just, just, he's just a bit odd. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, my, my, my coaching, and my, which is my career and all I've ever known really, has always been really serious to me but as yeah it's probably felt um there's been a degree of separation if you like yeah so you 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 start you said you start obviously you started your role at at, what was your first role at at swindon tom like this describe your sort of duties uh so community coach which would be like a bit of everything like from uh coaching in primary schools holiday sessions after school clubs all that all that kind of thing that most coaches do when they're starting out and all, all the jobs like setting up your Samba goals at eight o'clock on a February morning before the kids arrive for the holiday course and all that stuff that isn't really coaching, but is coaching when you're doing grassroots. Um, yeah. And there, there, it's like important stuff. And there's so many people where actually that's where their passion and all their energy lies. Um, so yes, started off as a community coach, worked there for many years um, and kind of um, evolved into doing some work with what was the boys center of excellence uh, so i took a team i think mm-hmm. i was the under 12s coach at the time and again like being a fan and being a coach it was really it was hard at the, that point like being quite inexperienced to be objective and and like keep a level of perspective on the coaching as well as thinking oh this is swindon this is great like I, I'm, I'm living the dream and the people like paul Bowden were around the academy and um it was awesome just to be kind of in the 
just in that kind of space and around people like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, they they were kind of my 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 only roles up until recently with Swindon kind of coaching per se. Um, and then yeah, the the journey took me off to the FA where I spent ten years there working on a on a football program which was um, aimed at ch- young people, children. Um, and it was very participation based and it was a program all across the country, kind of giving children the opportunity to come and play football. And so Trevor Brooking was the like the figurehead for the program. And it's funny, like I look back on that and it was 10 years, which are just amazing. And like this, mm-hmm. this kind of living apprenticeship as a coach, if you like. So, yeah, very fortunate for those kind of first um, moments and what the, the, the journey that the time at Swindon set me on. Do, do you remember any kind of very early successes in that role, Tom? Whether that be a, a breakthrough of a particular kid or, you know, sort of just, just seeing a little sort of nugget of wisdom that you pass on, sort of sinking in or maybe diffusing a situation or anything. What, 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 were, your, what were early successes that you recall? Yeah, it's an interesting one, this. And maybe, maybe this is where my view on coaching might be a little bit different to, to the vast majority of the population. I've always felt uncomfortable with success, especially with youth football or youth sport being defined by results and scorers and scorelines and all that kind of stuff, because it's really short term. Um, So for me, looking back on it, it was about how do we how do we create like moments and experiences that live long in the memory for, for all these boys who are coming through that academy system? Because ultimately, like we we know the stats, like it's like naught point one percent of children who start playing football end up playing as a professional. And like, okay, in an academy, that's a, a slightly better odds. But let's face it, most of those young people aren't going to play professionally. But they're still here. They're still in this academy. They still have um, an amazing opportunity to have a brilliant experience. Yeah. So I think from a very um, young, as in inexperienced time as a coach it's always been about helping people have really really great experiences and actually if winning comes then that's great but winning isn't the primary objective it's just one of many many things that are important when you're working with young people Mm -hmm. so do you can you think when you think back there tom can you recall sort of any of the are there any players from your very early days that have gone on to sort of achieve success in the first team like do you remember any names or faces i appreciate it was a very long time ago there's one lad i can't remember his surname and he played for the first team a few times first name was tom you might what some of you might be be able to remember he was a ginger haired lad and and tom smith tom smith yeah tom smith that's him so tom tom was in the team i coached um way way back uh, so I remember Tom coming through and making his debut for the town. Not that I could remember his name. Um, so he came through. But again, like that just speaks of, well, the the amount of young people who come through on that pathway and on that journey, it, it's really finite. Um, the yeah, ones who make it sure. to become professional. So, OK, so we, we sort of spoke about successes and creating sort of experiences, Tom. What about the kind of flip side and... Were, were there any kind of um, lessons that maybe you learned yourself where either you tried something and it didn't work or you, you might sort of to classify it as a failure or was there, was there anything that sort of that happened that was a real sharp learning curve for you back then? Um, if there's anybody listening to this who is a coach who's worked at any level, I'm sure that most people would say that one of the biggest challenges they face are parents. Now, parents... Ooh, yeah. 
are brilliant because actually without all their support and love and kindness, then their kids just wouldn't come. They wouldn't be able to be there. Um, but all that good intention can get in the way of stuff sometimes. And I don't really know what the parents made of me like back then, because I was probably my behaviors as a coach were maybe a little bit different to what they saw as like, like what they think they should see. So, um, people draw like these parallels between youth football and the professional game. So they see um, Jose on the sidelines shouting and screaming at players and thinking, well, if he's doing it there, then our under 12s coach should be doing it down here, which is just nonsense. Like it's completely different things. And I, I, I remember my first game with the Academy. Um, I think we were at Swansea and I was stood on the side and the team were playing. I didn't say much. I was really quiet. And there was an occasional well done and a thumbs up and a smile. Um, and I could hear this kind of um, this hum of like, like conversation behind me. Like, he's not interested. He's not very passionate, is he? He's not, he's not shouting and screaming and telling them what to do. And it was, I didn't, I didn't really know how to deal with it, if I'm honest. And I classed that bit as like the failure. Like, how, how do you deal with it? How do you go and like help them see it from a different point of view or a different perspective because all they saw as normal was well a good coach is someone who stands on the side and is quite loud and uh demanding of the players verbally um and like this coach he's not doing it so is he any good um so i wish i had the confidence or the skill at that point to be able to address it and like turn around and say actually there's some reasons why i don't want to shout and scream and there's other stuff actually if, if i keep quiet then it helps them more um which as time has gone on, certainly um, that that's evolved for me, how I deal with that. But yeah, that would be something I, I look back on thinking, oh, if only I'd managed to deal with that differently. I wonder if that would have had an impact on their experience as well as a parent in the academy system. Yeah, but it was also a sort of, I mean, that is a, a very much a sort of transitioning era as well, Tom, isn't it? I mean, we, when you think back to the period where you started coaching, um, you know, there was still a lot of, I don't just want to use this term, well, I will use this term willy-nilly. A lot of people will very lazily point to managers of the ilk or coaches of the ilk of a John Sheridan um, that are now <laughs> regarded as being out of time. You know, the guys that are on the touchline just, you know, balling and whatnot. Often now you hear, like, you know, your modern-day footballer just won't put up with that style of coaching and management. Would you say that's fair? Oh, yeah, I mean, like, we don't wouldn't accept it in any other kind of walk of life <laughs> i mean so why why would football yeah. be any different and it's funny isn't it like p people see football in its own little bubble but ultimately we're just coaching people and it's just people trying to help other people get better um and now you look at the top like two managers who like scream like being modern progressive coaches jürgen klopp who just you look at the love and he uses that word all the time like the love and the care that he has for his group and the players and look at, look at what he's like the day after losing a champions league final and then celebrating with his team because actually success is, is, is something else. Like it's bigger, it's bigger than just winning or losing a football match. Yeah. And then like someone like Ancelotti. So there was some pictures of him. I think it was Tony Cruz. He was talking to and someone else on the touchline in the, in the semi-final um, when they were behind and almost kind of asking for their opinion and their thoughts on like, what should we do? And you go back 10, 15 years. I mean, I, I can't imagine Sir Alex Ferguson doing something like that. Um, but that's what the modern coach um, should, that's what coaches should be looking at as good practice now. And I think oh, that's almost, like you say, that's what players expect. They expect, expect the respect and the understanding that 
the role of the centre-back and the role of the head coach are quite different roles, but they're still trying to achieve the same thing. I mean, most most football fans will kind of point back to the days of, of sort of yesteryear, Tom, and, and suggest that footballers have just got soft. Um, or, you know, we'll come to those kind of like cliched, cliched conclusions. Um, do, you, do you have a take on that? Uh, obviously, the world has changed. The world has grown up. The world is more inclusive. The world is more accepting. Um, and certainly the, war, the world feels a little bit more cerebral in, it, in its thinking when it comes to employment law and, and your world in particular, the coaching of, of football teams. Do, do you have a view on that? Whether or not maybe, you know, do you feel that footballers maybe have got soft versus what, what was there prior or... I think maybe our expectations have changed about what what um, what's acceptable and what's not, like like you kind of alluded to. Um, I, I think as well, it, it is different, right? So coaches and coaches who are probably performing at a high level are well aware that um, looking after the human and looking after the like being holistic, if you like, within their approach to coaching is is better connected to long term success. Whereas perhaps in the past, um, and you still you see this now, right? But but more so in the past, it was about short-term performance and like we'll win at all costs. We'll we'll we'll, we'll have that that nasty challenge or push people to a point where they're broken, and that's acceptable because winning is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I I don't I think I don't think it's been a transformation. I think there's just been an evolution over time to say, well, actually, win, like I said earlier, like winning is important, but there's other stuff in here that's just as valuable as in our team and in our society. Like, like I reflect on this as a town fan and I appreciate it. Not everyone will see it in the same way. Um, winning is important. It has to be. And professional football, like teams are set up to win. That's what it's all about. But if you think about it as a fan, there's been so many moments within this season and every season that you look back on with like such, such affection. And for me, that, that's winning as well. Score, scoring that last-minute header, Conroy, wasn't it, against um, Oldham. Like, yeah. that, that, for me, was as good a moment as you get as a football fan. So I know I've kind of morphed away from the question a little bit, but I don't think footballers are soft. I think, I think the game they're playing and the world they're in is completely different. And coaches would be out of jobs really quickly if they didn't, um, didn't recognise that. I think that the Conroy goal that you've picked out, Tom, is a really, really clever one to pick out because it was symbolic in so many ways in relation to the things that you've been talking about here, um, you know, with coaching. Ironically, it was a little bit of an up and out and goal, wasn't it? A big set piece, quick to flat post. But yet at the same time, you're talking about a centre-back that's been criticised for aerial ability or not being tough enough in the tackle, particularly in his early days. Um that score that was ostracised by a manager that was known for his slightly outdated, for want of a better word, um, tactics, <laughs> scoring scoring a goal that that manager probably would have applauded and then celebrating in a way that kind of essentially, you know, in many ways sort of, you know, signalled the end to, uh, you know, end to any success that said manager may have enjoyed this season. It was a, it was a, it was an interesting goal. If you're a, ro- if you're a romantic like me, yeah. Um, and I don't think I was alone, Tom, because the counter ground exploded that day, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, what a moment. Yeah, maybe maybe football has just its way of um, being able to right the wrongs over a long period of time. Yes, I think you're right. Well, look, Tom, I mean, look, you're, you're, a, you're a decorated coach now. Talk, talk, talk us through the process of getting your badges, because obviously you've, you've, you've mentioned the badges that you're carrying now. 
when when did that sort of journey start? Was that almost immediate as soon as things kicked off for you at the county ground? Or um, was this sort of something that you decided, right, I've got to go for that? Or was it brought on by your employer? Hmm. Um, it, it kind of all comes back to like some of the stuff we've spoken about already. Again, like um, playoff final, 1993, way before any coaching badge. When Swindon were at Wembley that day, like the penny dropped for me. I knew whatever I did in life, it had to revolve around football. And um, maybe I was fortunate to have that clarity or maybe just sent me on a path that like, oh God, am I doing this still? Um, and yeah, I, I, like, I didn't particularly enjoy school. Didn't really want to go to university, um, but loved football and loved coaching and just being out and working with young people and like helping them improve in, in whatever way that was. Um, and I went to... Um, uh, kind of did my A-levels at a secondary school in Newbury, so just, just down the road from Swindon. Um, so I was, it was over three years, some A-levels, and then some football qualifications. And I was on a on a football course, which was like 50% of the time you were doing the football, 50% of the time you were doing your studying. And it was ace. Like you, you played a lot, you got lots of experience kind of on the grass, you'd go off and represent the county in the county cup and that type of thing. And uh, I did my level one and my level two, during that three-year period um and then it was almost like well where do I go next and I did I did the B license quite quickly after that around about 2006 um but then got to a point of thinking well I, I don't want to just rush from qualification to qualification because all the learning takes place all the experience is, is when you're doing stuff and applying it and, and the experiences so um I finished my B license in 2006 and finished my A license about four weeks ago. Um, so there was a big gap in, in that time where there was, there was some other stuff in terms of formal learning and qualifications around youth coaching on the way. But those big blocks around those UEFA courses, it's taken a bit of time. Um, and I think for me, actually, like with, with anything, if for that learning to really happen, it, 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 there's no rush to it. And going off and trying things and making loads of mistakes and and learning and reflecting along the way um, has probably made me a more rounded coach on the journey. And yeah. I in in my day job, like I work for an organisation called UK Coaching. So we do stuff working with all of the Olympic sports. And my my job is to work one to one with with coaches who are working with athletes who are on a trajectory to a future Olympic Games. Like, so, like, but when I came to UK coaching, it was the first role I'd had, which wasn't football. And I thought I knew coaching. And like, all of a sudden, when you take that step to that different level and you're looking at sport and coaching in a broader way, like all of a sudden, you, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. So the qualification journey has been important because, well, they unlock doors and the A license is probably, well, it's one of the most renowned football qualifications that there is on the planet. Um, but but it's not like the be all and end all of learning in coaching. It's just it's a gateway, I think, to to kind of other stuff. Yeah. I mean, as, as you know, I've got two two kids at the moment, Tom, that are sort of on the on the on the cusp of disappearing off to university. And, you know, we one of them is absolutely hell bent on going and the other one is like you know, a little bit indifferent. And, you know, as I, I keep on saying, would you say it's the same kind of message I'm giving them, Tom, that, you know, as you say, it's a passport, really. A sta it's, it's a stamp in the book. You know, it's not it's not something that's going to get you where you want to get to, but it will certainly get you a seat at the table to at least have the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way the way that 
it work, I, I guess the structure of the way it works in football is if, if you want to coach in an academy and the way it's going there, if you want to coach in an academy or you want to be a head of coaching or an academy manager, then, then the A licence is, is your, your kind of essential criteria to be able to come to that. So uh, unless you get to that point, the, the door does remain quite firmly locked and there's probably lo- lots of reasons for that. But I think the thing I, I've always kind of advocated and wrestled with, if you if you can still be a high-performing coach and be a level two coach working with the Stratton under 10s, I, I don't know if Stratton's under 10s manager is listening and I hope he's a very good coach if he is, um, but you can, you can still be high-performing at all these different levels. You don't have, just being a coach at the highest level doesn't necessarily make you a better coach than someone else. Um, and the qualifications, yeah, they just, they just un- unlock doors and probably create, some different opportunities is is there snobbery tom because i i certainly i cast my mind back to when i was a kid at sort of growing up in very urban southeast london and i was coached by a guy that is absolutely legendary in those parts hasn't got a single qualification <laughs> but you turn up at his training at, at his training sessions for his team midweek and it is littered with scouts from professional clubs and my, my son ended up being a beneficiary of this and went off to West Ham. Um, he's, he's coaching. It's, it's, it's fair to say doesn't necessarily kind of operate from the manual. Um, mm. And he, he used to say to me that, you know, sort of he, he always hoped for, that for better for himself. as a, like a, He regarded himself as an old school coach. I mean, now he's, he's in his 60s. Um, but yeah, coached me at a very, very successful level as a kid. But he always felt there was a bit of a, it's almost like the qualifications brought a glass ceiling in. Do you, would you say that's fair, or do you think that there is a responsibility for these, for these coaches to have to kept up with the pace, so to speak? Uh, maybe there's a bit of both. Um, perhaps all coaches, regardless of where they're working, need to lead with the mantra of kind of do no harm. And, and if that's the way we see the world and the way we go about our business, regardless of what level coach you are, then you're probably going to have have a really great impact on the young people that you coach. Um, yeah, th- th- there probably is a bit of ego attached to attached to I'm a I'm a level four coach, I'm a level three coach, and and okay, it's something certainly to be proud of, but it's not defining. Um, it's just a a mark of like where, where you are on a certain journey. Um, and I've met loads of coaches who, from loads of different sports who um, are brilliant, but they're maybe not at the top qualification at the moment. And I guess the just qualifications are set up in a way. So that club who's the recruiter just knows that they've been through it. They, they have a base level of understanding about the game, but it doesn't necessarily say they're an amazing coach. Um, I've met some A-licensed coaches who probably aren't the best. Um, and I've met some level one coaches who are phenomenal at what they do, but um it's like any walk of life. Like you could have a master's or a PhD, but still maybe not be brilliant at applying some of this stuff in your day to day. Understood. So, okay. So thinking back over your, over your journey so far, Tom, and then maybe even sort of looking ahead actually, or the, on the, on the broader scale, but are there any, in fact, well, in fact, I'll ask you to answer both actually looking back. Are there, are there any sort of coaches that sort of really stick out as being enormous inspirations for you or, or people that have, that you've really gleaned from? And the second part of the question was, looking at the broader kind of coaching sphere, I'm going to guess you've mentioned a couple of names already, but there, who, who serves as your modern-day sort of inspiration? So almost like your past inspiration uh, and your, your modern-day inspiration. Hmm. Okay. Um, so 
again, there was a coach developer, and th- this will be a name that probably most people don't recognize, a guy called Jim Kelman. Um, he, he used to run kind of level one, level two, level three courses for aspiring coaches. And he still does a bit now, I think, standing Cornwall. But Jim was just legendary. Everybody who is about my age, who's got to level two or level three stage prob- and comes from kind of Wiltshire, Barks and Bucks area, probably remembers the name Jim Kelman. He just was, <laughs> he, had, he had a permatan. He was just so um, clear with everything that he did. Um, and, and actually, I think the thing about Jim that always um, I'll remember is just like the standards he would set. Um, he would always be on time. He'd always be clean shaven. He would always be smartly presented and he'd always be prepared and he'd live kind of those role model behaviors as a coach. So from the past, he's certainly someone who, who was a big catalyst on, on my journey. Um, and now look, I've been really lucky on my journey to kind of meet and connect with lots of different coaches from football and from, from other worlds as well, who, who just continuously inspire me. It's hard to narrow it down really in the football world. Um, again, like any youth coaches listening will know this name. So there's a chap called Peter Sturges, who is the FA's lead for what they call the foundation phase. So working with five to 11 players mm-hmm. and Pete has always been ahead of the curve. Like he's, he's so progressive. He, everything he does is backed up by research and insight which is probably a, a, a rarity in, in a lot of coaching that, that he looks at like the evidence first before going and trying things out on the field. And like you watch him coach and Pete's, I don't know how old Pete is. I don't want to say now in case I offend him. Um, he's an older chap and he's like, he's, he's kind of like every, everybody wants him as a granddad. Um, so Pete's manner and the way he is with people, just like everybody wants a bit of Pete when they go and spend time with him. So they're, they're probably quite different characters. Um, but certainly for me are, are kind of people whose um, impact was almost like a golden thread, if you like, with the way that I see the world and see coaching. Yeah. Okay. The two names that I'm not aware of, but two names that, yeah, as you say, any coaches listening to this hopefully will be. What, what do you think has given that, that those individuals qualities, Tom, do, do you have those roles where they're just content doing their roles, doing their jobs? Because at the moment, there's a big debate around the Swindon Town manager's position and there's there's always comments around oh, like under 20, you know, some, some of the problems that Ben Garner had, for example, this season was, but very, people would very quickly and very kind of glibly point to the fact that here's an under 23s coach. You know, this isn't somebody that is actually set up to manage a, you know, a, a first team. Do, do you think, you know, is there is there... Has football missed a trick by not encouraging guys like that you've mentioned that are so well regarded up into the pro game running teams? Or do you just feel that, you know, is is there anything that is blocking that? Is it their own ambition or is it football per se? Uh, It's not linear at all. It's certainly not linear. And I think um, what I mean by that is um, someone like Pete, who's kind of this specialist in working with young people and young children, and football is almost the vehicle in many respects for loads of other stuff. He's fantastic at that. Um, and his skills wouldn't necessarily have the same level of impact working with a senior men's team. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's just very domain specific. There isn't like a clear pathway from you're a coach at, at this level. And then there's a, there's a straight line progression. I mean, like within my, um, 
my last coaching role with a team I won't mention until you do. I won't say their name live on, live on your podcast. <laughs> we know where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I was assistant manager like, for two years with the women's team over in I'll say, Oxford United. Oh, oh no. I know. How many, list- how, many, how many people have just come off the court? It's like everyone's ah. just here. Um, uh, yeah, so I was there for two years. The role of, I didn't, I was kind of like naive to this, I suppose, to an extent when I came in, but the role of the assistant manager is so different to the role of the head coach. They do different things. Their, their job looks completely different. Success for them is, prob- is probably similar, but different stuff. So even within a first team coaching team, um, you've got really clear and different types of skills and qualities that get, that, that mean that you'll get different types of people in those roles. Um, and some of, some of those kind of partnerships work and some of them don't and they don't last as long. And I think the same goes for working at different stages of the pathway. Um, there isn't that kind of direct route from working with young kids to, to the senior team. And, and do you know what? I think historically um, the, the, the mantra has been, well, let's put our best and our most experienced coaches with the older players and let's put the young coaches who are kind of cutting their teeth with the younger players. Mm. And in a way that's kind of, counterintuitive because ultimately you want your experts and your best coaches and the ones who really know stuff to work with those young players who you can have more time with and help them kind of develop and grow in the right way so it's about having like the right level of expertise at all the different points of the pathway it's a very interesting sort of debate this tom because it's you've just got me reflecting on the various assistant managers we've had at swindon town over the years who have been given the opportunity to sort of step up and take the main the main reins, if you will. I mean, names that immediately spring to mind would be the likes of um, John Gorman, for example, mm. um, who, like, you know, universally popular. He, uh, you know, after he stayed, you won't find anyone in football with a bad word to say about John Gorman. Um, and there were so many reasons why maybe it's, you know, the things that happened to Swindon Town in the Premier League didn't go back to John Gorman as a, as a, as a managerial failure, per se. Um, but, you know, a, another name that springs to mind would be Luke Williams. You know, 2015, successful side, got to Wembley, was given the chance thereafter to run the side and went from, you know, somebody that had been given a three, four-year contract to somebody that was being sort of derided as just, you know, quite frankly, not up to the manager's job. And then... Tim Sherwood essentially humiliates him on the touchline, um, you know, by coming sort of just stepping down and sort of many fans saw him riding roughshod. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. Um, do you? I mean, is I mean, I'm guessing Noel, Noel Hunt was an interesting one for me, Tom. I don't know if you had an opinion on Noel Hunt, but when when we lost Richie Wellens, obviously we lost Noel Hunt as well. But you know, lots of people were of the opinion that you know Noel Hunt should have been given an opportunity because there should be like a progression plan where. Yeah, essentially, almost like one falls off the production line, then the next one's in in line to sort of like take over. But mm. from from what you're saying, like it's you know it's that sort of like a path that you tread with caution. Yeah, it's a tough one, and like maybe maybe there's lots of assistant managers who, if if that first team head coach role came along, maybe if they were really honest, they probably might, some of them just don't want it because they they they've had they've seen it from a slightly different perspective over the last season or two. And they see everything that comes with it. Like, I think we, um, as, as a society, have we we dehumanise coaching and coaches play at the top level, um, 
And like, I, I don't know, I'm on Twitter. If I if I look through my timeline and I have one negative comment, I forget the other 15. I zoom in on that. And then imagine amplifying that by 100,000. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough being being in the spotlight and being the head coach. So I don't necessarily think that um, every assistant aspires to be a head coach. They, they've, they, that, that might not be for, for them. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it, it, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, and the succession planning point and thinking about the future, that's something I wish. I just wish that perhaps we could have had the opportunity at Swindon to s- just see over a period of time. And I guess with that constant change and, and like chaos to an extent of managers coming and going and, and now like whole coaching teams coming and going, you don't get the opportunity to be able to almost plant the seeds and think about future-proofing your coaching program um, because change is so immediate. Mm. And, and that's probably why first-team senior football was held in a slightly different regard to what coaching looks like earlier in the pathway. If you're in the academy, I'd like to think most progressive academies are thinking about, well, who's our next coach? Who's coming through? In the same way they identify players, they should be thinking about identifying future talent and performance coaches. Yeah. Um, I think senior football um, maybe doesn't make the best use of that sometimes. Maybe maybe a great example of it working well is someone like Mikel Arteta. So he's he's been an understudy to Pep, but has clear ambition to be a head coach um, and then made the right move at the right time. So there's a succession plan to an extent, but it's on a in a different way. Are there any are there any countries? So thinking outside the UK, because obviously the UK has undergone a, almost like a coaching revolution. And particularly mm-hmm. if you think about the England team, and the England setup, and the consistencies and how the how the models changed. Tom, but are there any countries that you know that, that you know? Do you take a view on other countries and leagues that do it well? Because I kind of lazily train my eyes onto the German model. And and I look at, for example, um, you know, Hansi Flick now, manager of, um, you know, the German side, obviously, we drew with last night. Um, you know, he, he's almost been part of a succession sort of, you know, sort of chain through football. I know that, you know, if you look at the Bayern Munich model, um, again, for me, lazily, as somebody that doesn't sort of, sort of follows it from afar, there always feels like there's more of a kind of production line of coaches in, in Germany. Is that fair or am I, have, do, have, I, have I maybe missed the point? Yeah, do you know what? I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know. Um, but it, when, when you started posing the question, my mind went to Germany straight away. And, and I think there's potentially culturally differences in terms of kind of what coach development and the journeys of coaching coaches looks like. So if, if there's an ethos, if you like, within the club or within the system that you're able to nurture and spend time and create a space for coaches to learn and grow, then then you will get kind of that that kind of um opportunity for the coaches to thrive at a point um we it, here like we, we have a quite a um cutthroat society i think when it comes to um our opinions of if a football manager is any good or not um you can be out of favor after losing three games and then you're the worst manager in the world however before that you, you were everyone's hero um so i think it, it's really quite difficult but yeah it, anywhere that is, um, I guess, just appreciating that success doesn't happen overnight stands a better chance of that longer-term vision. Uh, that's an interesting one as well, Tom, what you were saying there, because if you look at Italy, there seems to almost be a culture of constantly recycling names. And and to a point, we kind of had that, didn't we? You know, if you, if you imagine a team, you know, probably like last year, year before, year before that, teams towards the end at the bottom of the Premier League that were struggling, 
if as soon as the manager got sacked, it was the same names coming up all the time, and that was not necessarily regarded as a bad thing. But if you look in Italy, you know, you've got like, for example, Spalletti, the number of jobs that he's had. You know, there is they don't tend to burn managers, do they? In in other leagues, in the way that we do. I mean, as a, as an example, the conversation I had earlier today revolved around um, Michael Carrick and whether or not Michael Carrick would take the gamble to come down to League Two to manage Swindon Town. And and the comment that I had was, like, that I had back was, well, but the problem is, if Michael Carrick takes that job and it doesn't work out for him, then that's going to be very, very hard in England for him to essentially then be given a chance, maybe further up the leagues or at that same level. You know, it, it, it significantly affects his reputation. I don't get the sense that it's the same in other countries. We are really quite brutal in that respect, aren't we? Yeah, maybe we don't have um, as much of a safe to fail space um, that other countries do. And like being patient with stuff. Well, I mean, look, you, you, okay, say in England, right? You go back to, um, and I only know this anecdotally, but like you go back to when Sir Alex Ferguson started at Manchester United. Like apparently he was on the cusp of cusp of losing his job, um, but they probably gave him just about the right amount of time to be able to demonstrate that that he could do the job. Um, I don't know how much patience, and again, like again, the culture's changed, hasn't it, with club owners and what their expectation is for the investment that they that they put in is is probably a bit different now to what it used to be like. Um, but it, it it's, I guess, the business of football gets in the way of um, the the kind of individual growth of certain coaches, and, and again, we we probably lose that a little bit. We lose the people in the system because we're looking at the the results and, and season by season, how the team is doing. Mm. It's an interesting one because for, for you know, you've only got to look at Ben Garner as a prime example. You know, he was pretty much tossed on the scrap heap by Bristol Rovers. Was very, very highly regarded when he left Crystal Palace to go to Rovers uh, and then got an opportunity to come to Swindon Town. And um, whether you regard that as restoring his reputation, but I mean, certainly when he left Rovers, I'd be very surprised if he was thinking 12, 12 months down the line, he'd be sitting in the, uh, sitting in the top seat at Charlton Athletic. Yeah, it must feel like a roller coaster for um, for people in that position. And yeah, it, I imagine that that's back with loads of excitement and adrenaline at times. And and at other times, it's tough when you're moving your family around the country um, and thinking about where's my next job. Um, that that can't be easy. Hence, hence, going back to why some some people just don't want want it. Yeah, yeah, for real. Okay, well, look, I mean, Tom, obviously, you you've got your badges. And you know you 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 you're now operating in the women's uh, the women's game uh, at a time when the women's game has probably had more media attention than ever before. Um, certainly, um, uh, the, the the quality of, of football that's on display in the women's game is as is as good as it's ever been. How how did your transition work though, Tom? Because obviously you're saying you've come up through the junior ranks at, at Swindon, you've done your badges. What what was your first opportunity in women's football? So how and 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 how did you? I don't like to call it a transition because it's the same game, but yet depending who you speak to, they'll ask you to view it in a different way. So you're gonna you're gonna certainly take me on a journey of discovery here, Tom. Yeah, I never, I never saw it as a transition. I just saw it as coaching, to, mm-hmm. to be honest. And, and for me, my first, um, I guess, uh, relationship with coaching in the women's game was when I left the FA and, and went to uh, went to Arsenal. So I, I worked at Arsenal Women for three years and looked after their women and girls football program. So this was everything um, which kind of encompassed the academy program. So we had like a player development. Uh, a piece 
work in schools, work in working clubs to, to kind of effectively really broaden the the player development pathway um, and create more opportunities for girls who were late developers or who hadn't been selected because they didn't stand out at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, personally speaking, and I think different coaches will probably have a different take on it. I've always really enjoyed um, working with female players. The, the, the receptiveness to, to engage and to learn um, like the intent to want to get better has always kind of emerged for me when, when working with that. And of course you see that with boys without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I've just found something kind of quite special about coaching female players that I felt as a coach, it's a, it's a space where I can, I can have an impact and and make a difference. So Mm. yeah, I spent, I spent three years at Arsenal, um, which gave me kind of a loads of different experiences and kind of going through that process again of like learning loads of stuff about coaching in general. And do you know what? People make kind of, I think, some false um, assumptions about coaching boys versus coaching girls. And should we treat the groups differently or are girls like this and are boys like this? And I I must admit, on the whole, I fundamentally oppose that. I kind of say, well, actually, you're just coaching young people. And if you're coaching a boys group or a girls group or a mixed group, well, treating everybody the same i.e. you treat everybody for who they are um is just like lesson number one in being a good coach so yeah there'll be differences perhaps sometimes in group dynamics and how like a group of female players might respond to things or 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 whatever but um ultimately you're working you're working with the same resources you're working with the same kind of ingredients as a coach so i've i've just always really enjoyed that part of the game and felt like it's where i can add add value and uh, is i mean one of the sort of one of the one of the sort of things that i have struggled with with the um with the women's game tom is i um there is almost this feeling and i i was i was um in a conversation with uh, somebody in relation to what the Tom Broadbent Lounge is doing in relation to the coverage of Swindon Town uh, and Swindon Town women's team. And one of the problems that um, I've got is one of geography. So I have enough trouble. I mean, you and I talked about this off air. I, I have enough trouble with my journey um, getting up to Swindon to essentially follow, um, you know, the men's first team, you know, a, a, you know, essentially a 240 mile round trip is a big commitment to me. And one of the things that, you know, certainly helps in that respect is there's a lot of media coverage um, that gives me an opportunity, even when I can't attend games that, you know, I can I kind of feel like I can at least plug some gaps. The, the, the problem that I, um, that I had in this conversation was there was almost like an implication that by us, um, you know, not having a sort of, you know, dedicated, um, you know, half an hour to talk for, you know, for me to evangelise around the women's team that I was in some way, it was almost implied as being a bit sexist. Um, and that for me really kind of took me back and um, it sort of just sort of stopped me in my tracks because that's never part of my psyche. And I certainly know it's never part of any of my panel's psyche. It's just a question of I, I don't, if I don't go to games, I haven't really got the expertise to want to come on and talk about it. And and I don't also want to necessarily talk about something from a token point of view as well. So if you will, almost like from a media point of view, if you come at it from a fan content perspective, it can feel like a bit of a minefield. Um, so uh, what's, uh, 
do you ever come across sort of those sort of allegations of sexism in and around the women's game sort of being bounded around or discussed where maybe you step back and thought that's either justified or indeed that's harsh and is there any sort of best practice you think um i'll be honest with you mark i don't think i've seen it a huge amount and maybe maybe i've just been fortunate in terms of the different environments where i've worked in um i think if we if we kind of treat it in in the kind of the ethos of well it's just people playing football and and actually it's an at an embryonic stage the growth of the women's game compared to where the men's game is at um of course the profile and the conversation um at the moment is not the same as what you would see in men's football right but over time this will grow and this will develop and, and really thrive mm-hmm. um you can see it right you, you go back five five years ten years and the the profile of women's football has just grown and grown and grown exponentially and it will continue so like i mean the women's euros are in england this summer um and they've sold more tickets for this competition for any than than any other women's football competition ever Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a huge appetite. There's so many young people who, who are keen and interested. There's, yep. there's, I suppose like there's different audiences. There'll be people who come to Swindon games um, who don't want to go and watch the women's team. And that, that's fine. But I, th- I think it's just to say, well, actually, there's, a, there's an opportunity here for the women's game to have such a great profile and for more people to find out about it and like come into it with like uh, and 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 enjoy the experience because it is a bit different to, to what you might find at, at, at men's games, but it's something that, that I think is, is fantastic and, and enjoyable for everyone. I, th- I think Tom, it's, I guess going back to my point about the journey I have, I mean, even if you are somebody that maybe let's say lives in Swindon, you know, you only have so many hours in the day and you know, to get, I call it my F pass um, when the family allow me to sort of come down and enjoy my football, um, you know, on a Saturday um, to, to then for me to dedicate time, I guess, even in sort of like a, a more local example, you know, you, we are, we are requiring people to kind of feel a sense of responsibility and a sense of kind of belonging to another team with under our umbrella. I guess in the same way, it was like I've I've never attended a. Um, I think maybe that's a lie. Actually, I've probably attended one or two reserve games in my time, but they've always been when I've been staying in Swindon, um, or for example, um, the junior teams. I've never actually attended a junior team game. So for me, it's the same dilemma. Whether it's men men or women's football, it's neither here nor there. And the only thing that I would say, not that you're asking for suggestions here, Tom, but <laughs> if there is if there is any way for people to um, you know consume the other teams at Swindon Town without necessarily needing to get off their backsides and 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 go out, um, that that is something. I mean, I certainly would um, be interested in consuming you know some of our junior teams' content, our women's team content. Um, just you know, I I'll consume football. I mean, if I'm walking through the park, I'll stop and watch a game. But um, you know, for for me, it's just a question of being able to allocate time when the first team already takes so much of my focus. <laughs> um, so, is it, but I mean, is, is this something that ever comes up in conversation with with you, Tom, in terms of access to games beyond the the you know the obvious of sitting in stands and consuming? Yeah, I, I think. We're we're in an interesting position that, of course, we'd love we'd love 
lots of Swindon fans to come to Swindon women's games and, and experience it and, and come along, but appreciate that um, that's not always as e- easy as said than done. Um, but I think there's there's more and more opportunity to be able to engage with Swindon women or, or women's football um, in a broader sense. I mean, it, it's more visible through BBC Sport or different channels and outlets now than it ever has been. There's more games on TV and the red button and on the radio than there ever had been. And that will certainly go in in one direction. I mean, look, if nothing else, at, at the moment, for your Swindon fan who doesn't go to watch the women, the, there's content in the programme that, that kind of keeps you up to date. But there's opportunities to follow and engage and get involved and support, but appreciate that, that people's time is finite. Um, but for me, it's about us have being kind of one club it's a one club ethos and if if your time is spent watching the men's first team doesn't mean it makes you any more or less a fan of the club we're all we're all in this together yeah for sure and i mean what 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 i would really like to to see tom moving forward and you and i've obviously had conversations around how this can be achieved but you know, I you know, I want I want to know more about players, and I, I want to know more about their abilities. I want to know more about the stats. So I want to know more about their achievements, um, and you know, I really want to bring their sort you know bring personalities to the fore. And I think you know through through that route, I think you we and and obviously no small measure of success. Although I appreciate that kind of contradicts the coaching ethos we've been discussing, um, but it helps Tom, doesn't it? If we've got if we've got a winning team, what's um? Yeah. But look, let's let's take a little let's take a little backtrack out of this because you touched on it earlier Tom didn't you you've been behind enemy lines for a little while <laughs> how, how did that come about and what must have gone through your head when that opportunity came up <laughs> when you promoted this behind enemy lines I thought it was a great way to sum it up um, <laughs> <clears throat> so when when I left Arsenal I wanted to kind of carry on coaching partly kind of with, with my UA4A license and um, I'd never worked with a senior team um, before not adult football and I live uh, just on the other side of Oxford to, to where Swindon is. Um, and by chance, uh, managed to speak to the, the women's manager, Liam, um, and, and inquire about any opportunities. And they, they had a vacancy for, for assistant manager um, and went along and did a session and, and got invited back. And, and then the next two years kind of just kind of came and went. Uh, and I'll be honest, I received quite a lot of stick. <laughs> and fair enough, right? Fair enough. Um, from both sides, Tom, or just from the red side? Oh, my God, from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, more so from the red side, though. I mean, my friends in the Community Foundation didn't let it lie. I don't think they'll ever really forgive me. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and look, I said this to the guys at Oxford. Like The first couple of training sessions, putting on the... Um, the Oxford training kit, I felt like I was on my stag do. You know, like when you're being forced to wear something you really don't want to wear. And I will tell you this, um, honest truth, my first training session, I wore a Swindon shirt underneath it. Yes! Um, <laughs> you top, you top man! You top man! Um, but yeah, do you know what? After a while, it kind of you, you become kind of... Um, uh, you, you lose the, the kind of... Um, the Oxford being Oxford element of it it's still there a little bit but it's not not as intense as it was to start with and look fair fair credit I think the the women's team at Oxford are a phenomenal group of people like players are so dedicated and 
they're all, they're all volunteers. They're, they're not paid to play. They all have full-time jobs and they travel and they commit to four hours of training a week and traveling all over the South on a Sunday. And the coaching team gives so much of themselves to this and they do an amazing job. And, and we finished second in the, in the third tier last year, but in, in the women's football at the moment, only one team goes up and one team team comes down. Um, and for me personally, I learned so much from Liam, the head coach and other people in that environment. It was, it was an amazing experience. Um, yeah, so I maybe it's just shifted my um, feelings about Oxford a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Um, but, but yeah, I uh, I don't think I'll ever be forgiven completely by some of my closest Swindon friends. <laughs> Tom, I've I've known you on and off for a number of years, um, almost going back to sort of I think the first time we became acquainted was around the Paolo Di Canio years, ironically. Mm-hmm. The guy that sort of, you know, certainly ramped up the um, ramped up the rivalry somewhat between the two clubs, if it could have been ramped up anymore. And um, I remember the day I saw you flash up on my social media feed in an Oxford, <laughs> and I genuinely did think it was a wind up. I'm so pleased you pointed it out that it it, it felt like some sort of stag do type thing. But um, so, but but was there? I mean. What it, so talking about the, the the Oxford women's team and the Swindon's women's team, I mean, does does that kind of rivalry and anticipation for when they'll get to play each other does that does that exist? Like, is it the same level of of sort of rivalry that the the senior men's teams and the junior men's teams enjoy? I think it's similar. Um, I think just because it's Oxford versus Swindon, then people are automatically just. Um, interested in what might unfold, and we played each other last season in in the um, in the League Cup at Oxford. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like Oxford United, fair, fair play to Oxford United; they really got behind it. And I I, I just had to kind of like um, take the, there was a meme on Twitter of like Homer Simpson stepping backwards slowly into the into the hedge. That's <laughs> uh, kind of how I felt across that that whole kind of week or so period building up to playing Swindon, and then then the game. Um, I mean, look, there, there is there is a, a gap right, in in level, and and this is the same in, in women's football. You look at the women's super league and the top four or five teams. There is a gulf between them and other teams in the league, and that happens between the leagues and in each league. And and there is a gap between kind of where Oxford are at and where Swindon are at at the moment. Um, but but absolutely, I think that rivalry lives on. It's probably not quite as fierce as. Um, as we've experienced with the men's side. Tom, could you give us the equivalent there in terms of, obviously you talk about the gap in standard. If we were to reflect on um, the, sort of like, you know, the, the EFL, for example, and the Premier League, whereabouts would you kind of, inability-wise, place Swindon in its current form versus, say, where Oxford are, or indeed where the top four are? Where, where would you sort of, where would we sit? The comparison game is a bit tricky. Um, from a tier perspective, Swindon women are in the tier below Oxford's league um, so there's a gap there but I think it just comes down to resource and, and infrastructure o- Oxford have probably thought about the resource they've put into that team um, for a bit longer because they played at a higher level um, more recently and because of the growth of the game they've probably been able to really benefit from the structure and the support from the club and, and the type of players they've been able to attract um, but do you know what? I'm, you know, I, I kind of have come, come into into Swindon Women recently and taken on this this director of football role. And for me, one of the 
big, big reasons for doing it is that I just see so much potential within this group of players and coaches and, and, and the team, but also just for the future of, of what, what Swindon women can do for women's football in the area. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've got a fantastic opportunity to, to kind of move up the tiers, to kind of really be kind of connected to the community to, to almost think about that that pathway from from playground to county ground if you like that we want we want to get get young people really interested in the team and we want we want we want the best best players in the area to see Swindon as the club that they want to come and play for mm. and there is not a reason on the planet why that can't happen um, it's just going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of work and and working things out but um, I, I think I think there's there are the seeds of something really special here. Tom, it has been utterly, utterly fascinating talking to you. And I love the, the fact we've been able to finish on a brilliant, I love a good soundbite, but from playground to county ground is my <laughs> cup of, right up my strata, Tom Hartley, right up my strata. Well, look, Tom, look, you're going to have to promise me this. Like I said, we, it, unashamedly so, because purely because of all the reasons that we discussed about five minutes ago. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on my own journey and I'm not going to be alone uh, on that journey. I, I, there is all the, all the willing and all the goodwill on my part. And I'm sure I speak for many, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of Swindon fans that are on a similar journey. Um, with your with your blessing, Tom, we would love you to come back on the show. We would love you to um, introduce, you know, uh, you know, the, the you know, the women from the women's team. We'd love to hear more from the coaches. Um, and, and because for me, it's if you know, I, I'm not I'm not one for tokens, Tom. And if I can't if I can't talk about something or have someone talk to me about something from an informed standpoint, I'd rather not just talk about it and then end up sounding like I probably have tonight, you know, like a little ham-fisted. But the one thing you've shown me tonight, Tom, is that all the kind of coaching ethoses, um, you know, it doesn't, and and the fact that you've talked about it not being a transition, that, look, it is the same game. um, That's the, that's the spirit that, you know, I really would like to, you know, you to help us sort of drive moving forward through this show. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Tom, don't be a stranger, will you? Absolutely not. Um, And, I've loved the last hour and a half. And with the introduction you gave me earlier, I'm going to put Mercurial on my Twitter profile, I think. But um, I'm going to ask you to be my agent in some way, shape or form. But no, it's been fantastic. And look, we'll, we'll get some of the players on. We'll get some of the coaches on. And yeah, let, let's, um, let's do this again. I mean it, Tom. It's an open invite, mate. It's been a real fascinating listen. You've spoken so eloquently. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, buddy. Take good care of yourself, Tom. Wow, Tom Hartley, ladies and gentlemen, director of football at Swindon Town Women's Football Club. What a fantastic uh, journey that individual has had from inside. God, God only knows, Chris, what the inside of that suit smells like. But from from that journey, a 15-year-old sort of, you know, oversized 15-year-old through to director of football of the women's coaching operation that and, and via those herbits up the 420. That's quite a journey, isn't it? Oh, it was, and I really wanted to ask him questions about what the Oxford thing was about. <laughs> yeah, I know you did, you rascal. We had to, yeah. rain, had to rain you right in, didn't we? But yeah. um, no, I mean, listen. I think, like I said, I've, I I stopped short of saying this. I didn't want to sort of sound like I was like either gushing, and I didn't want to embarrass Tom. But I really, I, I've known Tom a very, very, very long time. Um, 
and there has probably been a gap of um, you know a good eight to ten years since I've I've last sort of you know shared a, a handshake and a, a bit of an eye to eye glance with Tom. And the one thing I can say is that um, much like Rob Angus, you know, having Rob as CEO mm-hmm. of our football club and us having the reassurance that there is a you know for want of a better word a super fan um, sitting in a position of authority. It's also fantastic knowing that we've got a, a, a real top guy, genuinely top guy, but also underpinned by some proper coaching thinking and ethos, um, you know, shaping and crafting our, our women's operation moving forward. Um, it sounds like it, it sounds like really exciting times for the women's team, Chris, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it, it, exactly. And, uh, and I love the way that, that um, how close the teams are together. Mm. And, and that, that that's such a good thing that the... Um, We've had the, uh, the the first team and those teams perfect. Ted, Chris, I'll, I'll pose this question. Should almost do a straw poll with, say, Joe, and we'll bring Nathan in and we'll bring Max in on this as well. Um, if you were to think about a season now, I know we appreciate you've got some geographic, geographical challenges, but nonetheless, yes. you still buy your season ticket. Yes. If a season ticket took in more access to, um, and I really do mean like more access to the women's game and not necessarily requiring you to attend in person. But for example, you think about iFollow as an example. Uh, What sort of bracket of money would you say you'd be willing to sort of part with in order to have a a more one club approach to consuming football that comes out of Swindon? Well, I, I, I paid for my season ticket, what, 380 quid. Knowing full well, I would probably only go to four games, if that, and mm. I would happily pay seven hundred. What for for a one for a one club approach? So if you could buy like almost like a golden season ticket, proper access all areas to the junior games, the the women's team, yeah. obviously first team access on video as and how you can get it. Because I'll tell you, the interesting point about video, Chris, is there are a lot of out-of-towners, aren't there, that follow Swindon Town. You've only got to look at the success of, um, you know, um, uh, for example, that when Jif posts clips, um, you know, on Twitter, they go absolutely bananas. Yeah. there There is a real sort of thirst for that, isn't there? And and I know it's difficult because clubs don't want to put people off of attending games. And, and I appreciate this is a football-wide issue. But I can't help but think, if I would, I, I like you, Chris, I would pay a big experience. But I would still feel like I want to attend games. But I'd love to have all that as a fullback and all those extras as well. Well, what about you, Joe? Joe, if I bring if I bring you in, Joe, at this yeah. stage, where 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 do you feel? Where, what, you know, do you feel that more could be done in this respect? Do you, do you think that there's an appetite for it, or do you think we're not quite there? Or what, what do you think? I think we're definitely heading that way. Um, you've only really uh, from the women's side of things. You've got to look at you know Sky Sports have signed up the WSL the season. Um, they're getting prime time TV, you know, live coverage of games. Um, it's certainly something that I'd, I'd certainly be interested in going to a couple of games maybe next season, even just to go and check it out. Um, I was going to ask Tom, actually. I wasn't too sure where um, where our team, where, where we are in comparison to the WSL, whether or not we're three, four divisions below. Um, I'm not too sure whereabouts we are. Um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, some sort of streaming service would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, you watch an under-18s game in the morning on a Saturday, you know, lunchtime, watch the women's team, and then at three o'clock, sit down, tune into the first team. What a Saturday! Yeah, 
I mean, I, I like literally as as Chris said, I, I would I would explore, particularly given the flexible payment options. But I would I would explore, you know, paying a hefty premium on my season tickets going into the next season if there was that overarching um, sort of you know access appeal. But how about how about you, Nathan? Where, where, where are you at in the in this in this line of thinking? I think if they did something like um, you know get a match ticket for a for a men's game or if you have a season ticket then maybe you get like a discounted ticket for a women's game just to try it out i think that's definitely something i'd be interested in um as you know i live in reading and the um the women's team here are in the super league and i get stuff through my door um i go out and i see the women's team um training like little kids in the park the the, the women's team here is very is very active and it would be great to see something like that in swindon but it's definitely something i'd be open to 100% Okay, well, the message is loud and clear, Swindon Town. The uh, the the appetite is there. Um, I think we we need some we need some hooks, um, essentially. Um, Max, I'll keep keep your powder dry for a bit because we're we're going to move into our uh, move into the second half of the show. And obviously, it's been since our last show, um, it, you know, t- tumultuous times. Um, you had us um, you had us on just a week ago. Um, imploring the Swindon Town fan base takes a deep breath, calms itself down. Um, that you know, announcements were afoot back then. The news was just breaking that um, Ben Garner appeared to be heading um, out to the southeast. And Max, so it seems. Um, but look, we won't. Well, let's try and do this in a chronological order because I think um, what was very interesting was that clearly. Uh, I think whilst people were gearing up for the loss of Ben Garner, I don't think they were necessarily gearing up for the loss of Ben Chorley. And then it happened. What what, what were your thoughts, Max, with, with, um, with Ben Chorley? Well, it was just one of those. It's just, you think, here we go again. It's another sort of hit to, to the perceived stability within the club. Um, obviously, it looks like the club have moved swiftly on to solve that with the... I don't, I need to get his name down, but I know it's a good sounding Italian name. And judging by it, it looks like we're sort of back on track. I mean, the, the most restraining thing the past two weeks has just been the Charlton messing us about, oh, hasn't it? That's kind of what it seems seems to have been. Um, I do think Charlie will will be a loss, but if they if they brought in the right guy, then you know it, it, we have. Looking back at the six months time, looking at his recruitment and thinking, we were. We needed that structure in place, I guess. Hello, Chris. Sorry, buddy. Can you hear me? I uh, I can now. Ah, lovely, Chris. Sorry, buddy. We just we seem to be having a little bit of a technical glitch. Max started sounding like a robot. I was yeah, just making, it was. Just making yeah, a point a about. A, we had a bit of glitch there, but I think we're we're back on now. 
yeah, so Max was, I get the gist, obviously Max is, um, Max appears to be of the opinion, obviously losing Chor- losing Chorley was a bit of a shock, but that the club's yeah. moved very quickly to bring in Sandro Di Michele. Um, and uh, the point I was just making there, while clearly we were having that glitch, where I was talking to myself, was that yeah. the, he's quite clearly, the club's statement is that Sandro Di Michele is going to be overseeing the entire football operation. So, it's to, to all intents and purposes, it kind of feels the same, is it not? In but then the only difference appears to be that people are making there seems to be a bit more of a play about his analysis based recruiting, and that wasn't necessarily a a a view that people saw or language that was attached to Ben Chorley. Would you say that's fair? Um, that's it's a very different approach, certainly, because he's very much data driven, and um, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not so sh- so sure about that. Uh, I like a bit of it, uh, it but it's um, you need you need the data and you need and you need eyes on to get both sides of it. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interested me about um, Sandro. I mean, I wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about Ben Chorley, sort of reflecting on what he's brought to the club. But someone described to me today, and poor old Sandro won't necessarily like like this, or may indeed like this, but anyone that's seen the movie Moneyball, uh, people have drawn a conclusion um, that he is uh, almost like the Billy Bean assistant that that Bean nicked off of a a competing club kind of very early in the day. A little bit of an unknown, not necessarily a football man, um, as in someone that's come up through the ranks that, you know, is, is died in the wall, kind of, you know, football coach, football player, you know, this appears to be someone that's had a very, very different background coming into the game. But interestingly, and a Joe, I don't, I don't know whether you've picked up on this, um, but a lot's been made video. of what uh, Di Michele achieved at Wigan, where he spent significantly less than the rest of the division in terms of their recruitment, but nonetheless ended up with them sort of sitting pretty in the, in, in the league table. Absolutely. I mean, you look at Wigan's season, um, the year we went down in League One, they were very close down there with us, really. Um, the difference is tangible, isn't it? I mean, I, look, I think Tyler put in our group chat a picture of the transfers that they'd made last summer. And you've got names like James McLean, who, to me, is a top-end championship winger, maybe lower-end Premier League player in his, in his day, um, coming into the club on a, on a decent <coughs> wage. Um, I think the biggest thing with Sandro for me is I, I was reading up on the fact that he's is it a big part to play of the research for the football manager, the game? Yeah. And obviously looking at the data, uh, if we go down like a data analytic sort of route with transfers and that, you, I mean, what better background to be, um, to be employing as a club that's going to take that route than a person that's worked as a football manager with a database of hundreds of thousands of footballers with all of their stats logged in and the, the pros and cons of their game. Yeah. Um, it's really exciting. I, I think it's going to be, you know, a really exciting time for the club. You look at clubs like Brentford and uh, FC Micheland in, in Denmark went down the same route and they were playing in the Champions League within three years. I'm not saying that would be us, but um, yeah, it's it's different. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see where it takes us. Well, Max, I'll bring you back in at this stage because I think we got the, the gist of what you were saying. But I want to spend a little bit more time talking about Ben Chorley. Um and what was really interesting from from my standpoint, when Ben Chorley was first at the football club, 
and and things weren't necessarily you know sort of you know we were, let's just say we weren't necessarily ripping up trees. There were people that I remember. I remember having conversations in the Legends Lounge and hearing poor old Ben being described as M25 Ben, and that there were limits to you know what Chorley was doing in and around the club. And then when Chorley came back to the club in an elevated role, suddenly, obviously, it, it sort of coincided with us enjoying you know a, a, a string of really successful signings. A lot of them were were attached to, to Ben, um, and the, the general ethos was that it was it was Chorley that was underpinning all the success that we were seeing on the pitch. Now. Did we actually really know that, Max, or was that was that disparaging in relation to Ben Garner, or do, do you think probably it's more likely going to be somewhere in between? Well, you know, I think it's somewhere in between because you look at some, take someone like Johnny Williams for example. You you know he was probably a Garner, a probably Garner recommendation just from their link up at Crystal Palace. Probably the same with Egbo, the same with McCurdy from his time at Villa, that sort of thing. So you have to think. I think. Ghana probably had more to do with transfers than some fans like might admit, but I feel like Chorley probably did a lot of other stuff behind the scenes rather than just just the transfers. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, for, for sure. I mean, look, Nathan, from your point of view, I don't know how you feel about this, but obviously Ghana leaving. I mean, I, I certainly use the word or rather the uh, the utterance "men." <laughs> You know, today, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not being massively disparaging about it, Nathan. But what I, yeah, I couldn't help but sort of like feel that there was a distinct change in the water when Chorley left versus Ben Garner leaving. Uh, Chorley seemed to sort of coincide with a massive tailspin, uh, you know, of morale in a downward direction from the Swindon Town sort of certainly Twitterati. Um, did you get that sense, or again, was that just something that maybe I, I'd overplayed in my own mind, Nathan? No, I, I picked up on that too, um, especially from Twitter and the Town End forum. It was very much like, you know, we were like, "Well, it's okay, Garner's gone because we've got Chorley, and he was the, you know, he was the brains behind it all." And then with him going, you did, you did kind of see a, a very quick descent into just panic and madness, which is, you know, I'd kind of missed actually. Everything had been a bit normal for last. Um, for the last year or so, well, post Clem taking over, so it was, it'd been a while since our fans had had a meltdown. But yeah, there was definitely a real, a real sense of panic amongst the fans. Well, okay, so obviously Ben's Ben's gone. Um, I mean, listen, we can sit here and we can sort of deep dive into all the signings and apportion credit or blame, depending on which side of the fence you're on, um, to 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 those signings across the board. Uh, and try and make some form of judgment, but hey, listen, let's 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 move on and try and look to the look to the future. But what I will say, I mean, Chris, let, it, be, before we sort of like you know you know move on to sort of speculation, the, you know the speculation that yeah. we could be coming into the hot seat. Um, how do you think Ben Garner will be? Do you feel that history will be kind to Ben Garner? How do you think Ben Garner will be remembered for his time at Swindon Town? <laughs> Garner's time at Swindon is a tough one for me because of, of the way that most of the um, the fan base were, they were uh, most of them were against him, and I was I was probably more pro Garner than most people, and I and I thought to, towards the back end of the season, I thought he, he made the adaptions that got us in into the chance of. Um, what we did, but yeah, uh, all right. 
yeah, I'll take, I'll, t- I'll take your point. I mean, I'm, I, I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Chris, mm. where I felt, you know, if you, th- I, I cast my mind back to the Scunthorpe game, and I remember being stood at the cricket grounds and talking to friend of the show Helen Dolman, and I mm. remember saying to her that I can't help but think that. You know, this is literally win or it's win or bust for him today. Yeah, and we were talking about the fact that look, the tactics have to change. It got to that stage. Now, look, I'm glass half full on most things, but you know, I I got to a stage where I genuinely felt like he was a breaking point. So, and and I, I mean, he was he was a little unfortunate in that you know, but at the same time fortunate because some of the if you look at the success we have Mandela Egbo, Egbo only really signed. Because we lost Joe Tomlinson. Um, now, there, I'm sure there's a counter story about that behind the scenes. But certainly when I think about, you know, Egbo signing, it seemed to be the catalyst for that was losing Joe Tomlinson through injury again. Um, <laughs> and, and, and equally, the renaissance of both Matt Bowdry and Dion Conroy yeah. seemed to come about because of the injury and then loss of yeah. Brendan Cooper. I was going to say that... that... The whole signing about Egbo, Egbo should be signing about six weeks before he was. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And the, and yeah. the world may have been a different place. Yeah. But I mean, of course, with Egbo, it wasn't just, you know, with Tomlinson, we lost we lost Hunt around that time. And yeah. in, in some ways, we were so light on bodies. I mean, Nathan, I'll take, I'll take your view on this. Do you feel that, do you feel that some of the success Garner enjoyed with that crazy run of victories towards the end of the season, was he was a victim of or, or a beneficiary, shall I say, of circumstance? Perhaps uh, I can't really say. I, I I do think I would personally give Garner more credit than a lot of people are giving him. Um, you know, when it kind when everyone was kind of turning on him, I did think it was a a bit premature. Um, but you know, whatever happened, it worked. I I can't say for sure if it if it was. Garner or not I think the fact um, you know before the Forest Green game that McCurdy called out the fans like I'm that Forest Green game I think the fans won that game because we the way we backed them we just we just kept the ball out of the net you know when Forest Green were attacking um, so uh, yeah possibly but I personally I think Garner you know he, he did a good job I, I don't I don't think that's in much dispute for me. You can you can argue about the style of football, but if you give the season its proper context, it's really hard yes. to argue and say he you know he he did a good job. I, I, I think that's that's clear to see, and I think that's maybe how he'll be remembered. I think um, yeah, I think I was gonna say I think Nathan's pretty much nailed it on the head there because I know a lot of people are, are, are anti Garner, but it. We didn't have a big squad. Uh, once we hit injury, injuries, it was always going to hit us. And I thought, what well, what Ghana did with that squad was pretty good. Yeah, it's yeah. We've lived, I think I described it earlier, Chris. I tweeted that again. I use that word. I'm a bit meh. And if you think about over over history, I mean, I I towards the end of this season, I cast my mind back to season '92, and I remember. The 92 season felt very similar to this season yeah. where we were just not, you could see we were just that little bit short. And I feared come the end of the season that, you know, if we had a bit of luck go against us, we were probably, and we were doing all right. We had Duncan Shearer hammering in goals left, right and centre, which was kind of propelling us. Yeah. And then the, our little twist of luck back then was losing Duncan Shearer. This season was kind of similar in that we lost 
some of our very important players, but they were low knees. And I even remember going into the Port Vale games thinking, do you know what? At the end of this season, I still feel like it will give us a hell of a springboard in the next year. And I genuinely felt that we were set up to just dominate that league next year. And I think that was behind a lot of my disappointment with, with Garner leaving because I, I, I just felt that we got it to a stage where it, it, it like we next season I fully expected that it was almost like so what okay so classic hammer and style cutting my sentence off halfway but here's the thing I, I almost expected us to be um like um like almost like we'd hit our stride towards the end of the season we'd found that consistency we'd struggled to find home and away earlier in the season it was almost like we'd found that consistency we'd found that rhythm yeah. and I I just thought we'll carry that on into next season and. You know, but yeah, look, fundamentally it wasn't to be. But I mean, he was a figure, Chris. Yeah. The fans never really started singing his name until the very, very end of the season, did they? Let's be honest. For whatever, um, no, what, what, was, it, what was it about him where he came up? I completely up agree with you on this. It's, um, um, to be honest, um, Garner didn't have a bad season, but the fans generally just didn't take to him. It's it's hard, hard hard to describe, but um, they just didn't didn't like him. I don't know why or and, and whatnot. But uh, we had that that really bad spell in the middle. But apart from that, we really didn't do too bad. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the the tweet I put out earlier today, Chris, basically said <laughs> outstanding away performances. You know, um, you know, a sterling job with limited resource. But fundamentally, a, you know, that inconsistency at home really, really killed him. I mean, Joe, well, you, do, do you have a view, Joe, on on where you think Ben Garner's come up short in the minds of Swindon Town fans relative to the success he's enjoyed? I feel like it's it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, you've got previous managers like Richie Wellens, who was doing stuff in the community, doing bits and bobs around the club, was all over social media, praising the fans and... Um, was really intense with keeping that fan relationship with the team. Uh, whereas I think with, with Ben Garner, the only really interaction you ever had with him with the fans was him clapping the, the away end or clapping the county ground at the end of a game. Um, never really spoke about the fans, you know, in press conferences as much as I can remember, really. Um, is this maybe, maybe that's a symptom of him, obviously not managing a first team as much as um as a, as a Richie Wellens or a you know um uh, as, as, a, as a football as a first team manager he's come through as a coach maybe he's not had to deal with that as much as possible um at Bristol Rovers I mean he was there during covid so there wasn't um there weren't supporters in the ground I think it's just it's probably the first experience he's had as a manager with with supporters and grounds. Um, so I'm sure it will it'll probably be quite different at Charlton. He might take it as a learn. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's down to inexperience really of the role. But as as, as Nathan mentioned earlier on, um, you can't you can't knock him really for what we were expecting at the start of the season to where we finished. Um, obviously disappointed not to go up in the end, but. The, uh, the, the some of the performances we saw, the the cup run, getting into playoffs, yeah, you can't you can't knock the bloke. I don't think. Well, uh, yeah, some thumping victories. I think 
Uh, I mean, in many ways, Joe, I think because he came in as a, as a bit of an unknown and everybody knew that he had a background in under-23 coaching, yeah. I think yeah. the probably what didn't help him was the sort of perceived ostracising of Anthony Grant, mm-hmm. um, who obviously cult hero at the county ground, um, sort of, you know, was perceived as standing up in our hour of need in the summer. And, and then that led to conversations maybe lazily later in the season where there were issues with, you know, um, some of the more senior players. I think there was a, a comment made by Matt Bowdery on social media about being screwed over um, in football. And I think those kind of comments very, very quickly and easily get attached to, you know, people like, you know, Ben Garner in circumstances when things aren't going great, right? Because football is well known as being a blame game. I mean, we've heard that from some of our guests, um, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of living legends of Swindon Town. You know, they've described the dressing room, various dressing rooms as being a blame game. I think I attached that comment to Paul Caddis. You know, when things are going well, it's great. But when things aren't going well, um, you know, people attach blame quite quickly, don't they? Mm. So I think that there were, you know, I think it was very easy for us to attach conversations about, you know, problems managing senior players versus, you know, the ease of managing younger players. And was that a chink in, in Ben Garner's armoury? And I, I mean, think with, with, you go back to Anthony Grant there as well, Obviously, that stemmed off of the back of the Jamaica call-up, didn't it? And I think you look at obviously Jojo got called up to Ghana, and then never really came back in the team. Obviously, Wardy deserves to keep the gloves. I think, in my opinion, that he didn't put a step a foot out of um, line. But even in the past, we've had previous with with players going away to international tournaments. I think Luongo, Yasser Kassim, just not being the same player or not coming back into the team. I don't know whether or not there's a sort of a chip on the shoulder. Um, mentality when I come back from tournaments because I think, you know, I've been playing in front of tens of thousands every week um, which they now get at the county ground I'll, uh, I'll add but, um, you know I, I, I don't know whether or not there's a confidence thing but obviously Ben Garner didn't like the fact that um, it seemed that probably more so Grantley was on the on the basis of looking at things maybe putting a bit more effort into the, the national team than he would be the club. Obviously, he's of an age where his club career or his football career is towards the end of it. And obviously, he's, he's been called up for his country at that, at that ripe old age. So, you can't really blame him. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think managing an, a, a footballer that's gone into an international scene um, for the first time, it, I don't think it's as easy as, um, as some would make out. Yeah, I think it's a very, very tough one with Grantie because depending on who you speak to, you'll get sort of, you know, different views on, you know, what he what he bought at Swindon Town. But I guess my point is fundamentally, if we're talking about building relationships with the supporters, you know, to ostracise arguably the biggest cult hero in the squad or mm. be seen to ostracise the biggest cult hero in the squad was, was going to be just, it's another reason to attach negativity um, to to Ben Garner at a time where maybe we were struggling, but um, I mean, listen, I, d- I don't want to um, I don't want to put you in that too difficult a position here, Steve. But obviously, um, I introduced Steve Hooper, ladies and gentlemen, from the kit room. Hopefully, Steve, you're in a position to say hello and come on. Um, are you, uh, Steve, Steve? Say what you feel you can and what would be politically correct. We don't want to get you in any bother. Um, but um, obviously, it's been a been a tumultuous week, hasn't it, at the county ground? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've not been in, so I've not really seen any of it, if I'm honest. Because we're off for a few weeks, obviously, and then back in in, I think, two weeks we're going back. 
How how dif- Steve? How difficult will it be for you, sort of, because like you say, you're away from the club. Everything that you've known and all the success that that was built up last season, you know, and we got to that boiling point, at, you know, against Port Vale, home and away. Didn't, we didn't quite make it, and obviously there was the fallout of the game. And I'm sure, like many, you went away thinking, you know, we're going to pick up and on we go. Did you have any inclination? Was there anything to suggest that what's happened in the last week was was going to happen um, around that time? Did you get any senses? Nothing at all, to be honest. Mm. But it is what it is, isn't it? It's football, and as we've said before, people always come and go, and you just crack on and get on with your job, and our job ain't going to change. And, you know, hopefully new guys come in, and, you know, we create a relationship with them, and then we move forward, and everybody just cracks on with the job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And is it? I mean, from from your point of view, Steve. Like, I guess it's like any other workplace, isn't it? When there's when there's a change of leadership, it's just sort of try and get in. Obviously, football's so much more of a compressed environment, though, um, in terms of time frames. Um, you know, in terms of sort of contact with these people. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm guessing it is just as you say, a question of get get the get the new heads through the door, get introductions done, um, and 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 make as best as 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 best an impression on these people as you can, I guess. There's not a lot more you can do, is there really? Well that's it. And I think pre seasons are good because obviously when the lads come back and we'll have everybody in place by then you'd hope. Um and then you're with them all day, every day for five weeks or so before the season starts. So you know, that's probably the best opportunity and the best time that it could happen. If it happened mid-season, which we've had before, that can be a little bit more difficult for obvious reasons because you're bouncing game to game and, you know, you're in, you're off, you're, you're in in the morning, you're all over the shop, you know. Um, you're travelling all over the country and sometimes with them and sometimes without them. So you don't really get the chance to get to know people, but obviously in pre-season, it's, it's a bit easier because you're with them every day. Yeah, and I guess the, the the other thing, if you reflect on on last summer and all the all the trauma and turmoil that we went through as a club, the the thing that really struck me last week was just how quickly our large swathes of our social media fan base, our social media based fan base, went into the sort of downward spiral, almost like could, trying to compare this summer, what's happening this summer with last summer. But it's very very different, isn't it? I mean, the, we we have, for want of a better word, this summer we have a lot of time on our hands, Steve, don't we? Relative to last year. Oh, it's this completely different situation. We, you know, we it's just a manager leaving or head coach leaving and a new one coming in, which we, which every club goes through. And you know, we've had it. I mean, I'm trying to think of how many managers we've had in three and a half years. I've been doing the job, and there's quite a few. This will be our sixth, I think. But yeah, like it is what it is. You know, every club's going through it. Like you know, even players leave and. You need, I don't know, a new striker. It's the same thing. You just got to find the right person to be in the right place, and it's completely different. I mean, last year we almost didn't have a club. None of us were getting paid. Like, you know, whereas this year everyone's on their time off, and by the time we come back, it'll all be sorted out. So it's a completely different situation. So I don't really understand the big meltdown, if I'm honest. And and I think the other thing is, Steve, of course, that I mean, the fact is. You know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I grew up in an era where Swindon Town were giving out three, four-year contracts to people. Um, and we'll all remember the sort of figures that were associated to the Paolo Di Canio era and the sort of budgets we were operating with there. But, I mean, football, you know, certainly in the lower two divisions, certainly in League Two, 
I mean, it's very rare that you see a player being given a two-year deal, let alone a one-year deal. So to to a, to a point, you know, we've, we've almost got to play that game, haven't we? And, and uh, you know, play to the same rules as everyone else, try and get ourselves out of this division and then out of the next one before we can start dreaming of that wonderful word loyalty or, you know, people hanging around a bit longer. I mean, it is, we're kind of victim of, we're just a victim of the level we're operating at, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, again, if you have a good season in League Two, teams from the league above are going to look at your players, look at your manager. And it's the same in any league. You look at when we were in the League One playoff final 2015. Within a couple of weeks, 16, 17 people had left the building. Because if you have a really good season and you don't get to that promised land of getting the promotion, then clubs from the leagues above are going to come sniffing. Of course they are. You know, because that's just the nature of the beast, especially League 2, League 1. If, you, if you've had a good season, you've got good players and you've got good coaches and good manager and, you know, people are going to come sniffing. Of course they are. Why wouldn't they? And if, if you've had the good year, then you've got to kind of expect it. Yeah. So what, when when are when are we? What, do you know, I mean, are you allowed to say, Steve? When are when are the boys actually back at back in training? Have we got well, have you got a date fixed? I mean, we've got our date of when we're going back, um, which is the twentieth, and we're going to be in to sort all the kit and everything. But again, I mean, everything that we were given was based on like the previous people that were in, so Chorley and and Garner. Um, so I don't know if it will change. I don't know what new people will want. But again, it's just to play it by ear and work how you can work and get stuff done. But yeah, I don't really, not really too sure what they want. I can't see it changing too much. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, sort of the end of, end of the month, really. And we'll all be back in. And and obviously, Steve, I know we can't, we can't talk kits, but you, I know that you've seen the kits, and I, and you've got very excited when I've asked you, and you've basically told me to shut me trap and not push you any further on them. But fair, <laughs> fair to say, from what you told me, the Swindon Town faithful are not going to be disappointed this season. As I said last year, patience is virtue. <laughs> because so, you know, you wait your time, and then you see it, and you go, "Yeah, I like that a lot." Yeah, and and obviously you're you're a man that gets the poor over a lot of kits, Steve. So it's fair to say that's that's quite an endorsement of our new lineup for the new season. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you cryptic questions. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm not gonna give you any answers. Yeah. <laughs> These are teas. But we, we have some we have some exciting plans, Steve, don't we, for kits? Um, yeah. That, that, that may or may not involve our, our good selves in the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge. So um, for all of those eagle-eared, um, keen-eared listeners, um, do do keep your eyes across uh, the lounge and what we're going to be doing over the coming few weeks. Um, because, yes, we're, we're going to have a, a fair bit of fun. Um well, look, Steve. Um, I mean, is there anything is there anything that you'd like to add, um, sort of specifically in relation to you know, obviously the last week and looking ahead? If you could sort of like encapsulate anything and push it out to this lovely audience listening to, is there anything specific? Um, you'd I like haven't. To I haven't listened to too much tonight, to be honest. So I'm not too sure what's been covered and what hasn't. Um, what I'd say is, it's like it's like any other workplace. If you have people in and they do a really good job, other companies or other clubs, or other, you know, organisations will come looking at your people. We've had people in that have done a really good job, and other people have come looking at them. You can't stand in anyone's way, 
if they can go and do a job at a higher level, you know, you just can't. And you wouldn't want people to not go and better themselves and not go and perform at that higher level because ultimately that's what everybody's in in the sport for is to get as high in high in the sport as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just kind of have to wish everyone well because, I mean, brilliant. Brilliant for them. Brilliant for their families. Great for their careers. Like, fantastic for them. And now we have to kind of put that behind us. You know, when new guys are in and announced and everything else, then we've got to get behind them. And we've got to have a really good go this coming season, you know? And and I'm sure we will. I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring Nick Nick Judd in at this stage. Juddy, good evening, mate. How are you? I'm very well, mate. How are you? Oh, yeah, very well. I think well, we were we sort of stuck in a spot, I think, really, where we, I thought we'd take a little sort of forward view on managers now. Um, as I mean, you, 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 obviously former admin at the, the football club, going right the way two, back. To the two seconds, Hannes. Hi, Reedy. Hi, Reedy. Nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, admin, admin at the Swindon, uh, at Swindon. Billy Reed, listening in. Apologies, Nick. Don't know, what, don't know quite what's happening there with Alex, but um. Sounds more exciting than what's going Alex, on in my house at the moment, mate. That's for sure. No, 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 no. Just Alex, we're going to keep you on mute for a second, mate, just while we sort this bit out. Um, Didn't even know I was on, mate. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine, mate. Um, so, Juddy, sorry, mate. So, obviously, former admin at the football club, going all the way back to the Mighty Amanda's era. There is not much that um, you haven't seen um, <laughs> at Swindon Town. And obviously, your fandom goes right the way back to the pre Glen Hoddle days. Very, very similar to mine. Um, we, we were kind of hoping, I think, with Ghana sort of going today, I think we were sort of probably wishful thinking. We were hoping the club was going to follow up very quickly with announcements of a new manager. Um, is there is there anybody that you are of an opinion, um, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't like to be, sort of, I don't like to take a negative view, but is there anyone that you, you just, you've seen coming up in the odds that you're just thinking, that please, like that, that just cannot happen, like cannot happen. And if so, why is that? Well, I think there was a few. Um, there's been a few random names pop up today, hasn't there? Um, which were a little bit left field, uh, should we say? Well, I think the the ones that we've we've talked about the ones that I think we were kind of thinking would be a bit of a disaster from a sort of PR point of view. Your sort of Sol Campbells and people like that. Um, it's a weird one, really, because none of us really wanted Wellens when he came. He did a good job. Um, none of us really wanted Garner. I think it's probably fair to say um, he did a good job. So I'm kind of a little bit loath to sort of write off anyone that's sort of been linked with it, really. But I think we've all had so much time to think about it. We've all sort of dreamt up our our own sort of dream scenarios, whether it's a, a Ryan Mason or a Wellens return or a Fabrizio with Cadiz or something like that. I think the more time we've kind of all got to think about it, the more sort of disappointed we'll be if it's not one of those, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, from your point of view, Nick, what is it? I mean, again, we're probably stating the obvious here, but, you know, the, the sort of the calibre of the sort of names that you're talking about, why is it you think, for example, a Paul Caddis would be a success at Swindon, given our current plight? What is it you think he brings to the table? Well, like, to be honest with you, like anyone, anyone who gets appointed this time around, it's... 
it's a risk, isn't it? We don't know. Any, there's no sort of guarantee that anyone we appoint is going to hit the ground running and, and get us out of League Two. You know, like, look at all the appointments we've had. Um, even sort of going back to the Canio, massive risk. Wellens had no idea. Risk, Garner, the same. I think I think the main, the biggest thing that Rob and Clem really have to take into consideration this summer is how much um, positivity they've kind of clawed back in a very short space of time. And so what they've got this summer is such a huge opportunity to really get the excitement going again. I mean, from their point of view, they're obviously trying to shift season tickets. Um, they probably want to appoint someone that's that's popular um, to sort of make up for the whatever disappointment there is of losing a manager who almost got us out of League Two. Whatever we all think of Ghana, he did a pretty good job and almost got us out of it. So um, there's just a really good opportunity to really build something exciting for the new season. And I think um, someone like Cadiz is a number two, perhaps. You know, he knows he knows the club. He kind of gets it. He gets the kind of journey that we've all been on. I think someone like him, we were talking um, earlier in the week and sort of saying that Fabrizio that's going to work. I think it would. You still there? Yeah, still here, Nick. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's just that's just, it's just a big opportunity. I think. I think it's been such a um, a season where we've achieved loads more than we all thought we would. Um, there's been loads of positivity, um, and this is just a really big opportunity to really seize on that. And um, we all need a bit of a lift after the playoffs. And I think um, you know the right the right appointment would really get us going again. I, I think Nick, what's what's really interesting listening to you speak is, and and taking on into account some of the things that Hoops have said, and indeed some of the things Tom Hartley said earlier in the show, uh, I, I can't help but think uh, this feels like such a contradiction of the entire bloody show. But you know, if what I'm kind of looking for is, I would love to see a manager just come in and just like literally give us give us a couple of years, like two three years, and I, I can't. There are certain managers that have been in the in the odds, and you've only got to look at my bio to see who I, I put my full weight behind. But I genuinely believe that you know Paul Caddis is someone that has and has an affinity with the club. Um, he has an affection for the club. Um, you know the likes of a Fabrizio Picaretta, similar story. Now, for many, these will be pie in the sky kind of names, and I'm not, you know. But for me, it's about like look. Can we? I think one of the things, one of the words that gets banded around by Swindon Town fans quite a lot is stability. Um, but equally, stability doesn't need to be boring. And I think you know you've got somebody there in in Cads that taps into the fan base, that you know gets has a feel for the fan base, that speaks the game brilliantly, that has coaching badges, that has played the game at a very, very, very top level, and as part of the right coaching blend, whether that's with a more experienced manager or being underpinned by a more experienced manager. That's kind of, for me, what, what I'd like to see brought to the fore. Um, I mean, it's, but then having said that, there's part of me that thinks, 
if it's such an easy appointment to make, you know, everybody knows that Paul Paul's obviously involved in a coaching job at Fleetwood. Um, you know, I know, for example, Fabrizio is out of work at the moment um, in terms of sort of coaching. He's not full time coaching over in Italy. You know, he's enjoying sort of, you know, time away from the game. You'd like to think that, like, that's an appointment that could have been made very quickly, isn't it? Yeah, which does make me wonder whether it's not going to be that because we were kind of, I think everyone was kind of half expecting our our appointment to be announced as soon as Garner was announced. Um, and like you say, I think Fabrizio and Cadiz would probably be the sort of easiest, quickest um, appointment to make and, and to be announced. Um, and the fact that it's not happened sort of immediately makes me think that that might not be the case. Um, yeah. I think someone like Cadiz, a Cadiz and Fabrizio combination would be would be good fun. Whether it would be any a, a success or not, who knows? But it'd be good fun because you, you at least you know straight away you've kind of harking back to the Canio era of Fabrizio. Um, you know, Cadiz would would talk a really really good game. We'd all sort of massively be behind him from the start. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make a good point about stability and I think we were probably all expecting stability this summer and obviously what we've got is anything but um, but some of the sort of names that entered entered into the um, managerial list at the bookies today are sort of your sort of up and coming rising coaches who you kind of think if they did a half decent job would probably be off like Garner would so, yeah, it's it's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, I did think that. I mean, Mark Delaney is a name that has been punted around as somebody that very much, you know, to a degree, he kind of fits the the sort of tracksuit manager, for want of a better word, model that Swindon have always been very successful with. You know, a, a former player, you know, decorated at international level, you know, a lot of appearances in the Premier League for some huge, huge clubs, it might be added. Um, and, you know, getting on for sort of, you know, double figures sort of experience, um, years of experience, at, you know, coaching younger players. So I think on the on the surface of things, you know, Delaney, you know, Delaney ticks boxes. But exactly to your point, my, my concern with bringing a manager like that in is, you know, again, if we enjoy success, we're we only going to get 12 months and then we're back to the yeah. start. But then but then to the point, Nick, without, like I said, let's not contradict the whole show. It's almost like, well, look, that's football these days, isn't it? Particularly at the lower level, you know, success success breeds, you know, um, you know, uh, opportunities elsewhere, and uh, and and certainly you can, you know, as, as Ben Garner's proved, you know, you can you can fevy a nest quite nicely. Thank you very much in the space of you know eight nine months. I think, well, I think also just just to butt in, um, if somebody like that was to come in and you were to have success, but actually have success. So get promoted. Do you not think they would then stay? Well, you would hope so, Steve. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, th- yeah, you so think so? I mean, you know, do you think Garner would have gone to Charlton if we were in League One? Well, who knows? Who but, knows? Um, but, you know, you'd like to think that maybe had we actually gone up, we'd have had that stability that everybody wants and kept everyone together. So it's a bit of a catch twenty two, really, isn't it? Because you bring the guy in, and then if you have actual success he stays if you have almost success that's where the problem lies yeah Yeah. there's there's also a part of me that thinks um you know if if someone comes to us and has success and then leaves at least we're out of league two and actually if you're looking for a new manager having just come out of league two going to league one you're actually a much better proposition to attract but possibly possibly higher higher caliber of manager 
um, and it becomes a bit of an easier task, really, while you're sort of languishing in, in league. Uh, that's a very interesting point, Nick, because the someone made the point, I think it was on last week's show, that the jump up from League 2 to League 1 is not as big. So if we did go up and lose our manager at the and end down of the year... Sorry, Nick. I had a little bit of. A, I think we had a little bit of a tech, tech, tech glitch there. If you can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Yeah, I can hear you now, buddy. Yeah, sorry about that, boys. So yeah, I mean, the point I was making is that somebody said on the show a couple of weeks ago that the jump up from League Two to League One is not that big. So if you're going to lose a manager in those circumstances, maybe between those divisions is a little bit more forgiving than if you lose a manager going up from League One to the Championship, which is a huge leap. Yeah, and and I think also losing a manager having gone up to League One is. Is is easier to take um, in many ways than what's just happened this summer because whatever you think of of the job Garner did, I actually think he did a pretty good job. But to kind of like walk away from it um, is frustrating, really, and and leaves a bit of a bitter taste. But you know you have to see it from his point of view. His stock's gone up pretty high this season, and if he feels he can. Um, if he if he gets offered a, a position like he has um, higher up the food chain, you've got you know you'd be silly not to take it. Um, so, but it just feels like a bit of a, a bit of a kick in the teeth that you didn't need after the playoffs to, to lose just kind of your management team when you're kind of looking forward to a reasonable stable summer. But yeah. where would the um, where would the excitement be if that happened? Eh? No, very very true. But, well, when you look at um, when you're looking at League Two this season as well. It's not an easy league to get out of. Mm. Well, I'm, I mean, you look at the clubs that are in it, and I'm sort of thinking we've got to be looking at top three, but we've got a lot of miles to cover. There's going to be some down and dirty, I think, at times this this year as well. Um, it is going to be tough this year. You know, the longer the longer it takes us to get out of it, the harder it gets, isn't it? All right. Well, look. Let's we'll, we'll we'll round off the kind of managerial section, as it were, by just doing a quick straw poll. Last time, and I'm not going to mention his name in terms of last the guy that came out on top of the popular vote last time. But um, let's see. We, we're we're trying to do this in reverse. Max, if I start with you, um, two two words, unless it's a triple barrel, double barrel surname. What's the uh, who is your manager of choice, Max? Uh, probably Mark Bellini at the moment. Mark Delaney for Max. Joe, who, who are you going for from, from the current options available? I'd probably go Mark Delaney as well. I've been through stages today of Ryan Mason and Matty Taylor, but I think I'm a bit heartbroken about them too. So we'll go Mark Delaney. So two votes for Delaney. Nathan, who are you oddsing on? I still want Ryan Mason, although I don't think it's going to happen. Ryan Mason. So two votes for Delaney, one for Mason. Nick, who are you who are you hoping for? Or is a chance we may have lost Nick? So we'll come back to Nick. Chris, who, what about you, buddy? Who's your selection? Well, I'm I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go against what Kev said and Ryan Mason. Ryan Mason, we've got two for Mason, two for Delaney. Um, I'm gonna stick to my guns. Uh, I, I I genuinely think that the answer is is right under our nose, and that and the answer is Paul Gaddis. 
um, with um, Fabrizio Picaretta, um, not just for nostalgia, but also because I just think, um, you know, he's he would bring a, a, an interesting new dimension to um, to the coaching at the football club based off of his experiences back in Italy um, and indeed up in Finland. And he's still, you know, in coaching terms, um, young, ambitious. Um, and I'll tell you the thing about Fabrizio as well that gets me a little bit excited is I would hope in the same way he showed Paolo Di Canio um, loyalty when he decided to leave the club, despite having sort of managed us to a win up at Tranmere when Paolo left, I'd like to think that loyalty would play a very, very big part in Paolo come, in Fabrizio coming to back to Swindon Town. And I'd like to think that um, it would be the sort of appointment where if we're on about stability, I don't think he's the kind of guy that is necessarily, you know, the sort of guy that wants to just build a, build a reputation for himself to get another big job in England. But at the same time, I think it would be inevitable that the offers would come. But um, I don't, I'm not aware of what his financial situation is away from the game. But, you know, who knows? So for me, it's a stability play and it's pulling on the heartstrings a bit. I'm not I'm not going to push uh, hoops. That would be grossly unfair for us to ask hoops. Boring. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're safe. You're safe, hoops. We're not going to push that. But so suffice to say, you just want to get it back to a stage where, like, you know, just get everyone... Everyone should be feeling chipper. Everyone should be sort of starting to rev themselves up again for the new season. We've still got another couple of weeks, haven't we, with our feet up? But uh, well, we have anyway. You haven't, um, and then and then away we go. Um, okay. Well, we've got um, so we've got uh, a couple of other bits and bobs to run through, guys. Um, we have got um, our uh, pre-season fixtures have been confirmed. So. On Saturday, 2nd of July, um, away from home, we're going to be taking on Melksham. Uh, the following week, we are away at Swindon Supermarine. Um, on the 12th of July, we're away at Woking. On the 16th of July, we're away at Eastleigh. On the 23rd, we're away at Worthing. Um, but it seems to be that'll be a second string sort of mix side, probably including a lot of the youths. Because on the same day, we appear to be, or we will have our only home preseason fixture against Cardiff City. Um, how, um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll take a view from any of you here. Um, sort of, Joe, let's start with you, really. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'm never, I never get particularly sort of bowled away when preseason sort of, you know, lineups just include a lot of non league clubs. Do you expect any more sort of league, league teams to be plugged into that between now and the start of the season? I don't think it's needed, really. I think a pre-season game, it's 90 minutes of running, isn't it? It's, it's minutes in the legs for the boys. Um, I, don't, I don't think it really matters, the opposition. Because obviously there's, there's, no, there's no real competitive um, sort of need to win a pre-season game. Uh, it's just a case of getting minutes and legs and that. Um, it's nice to see Woking on the pre-season list. It's, it's like a 20-minute drive for me, so... That'd be a nice little trip for, for myself. I just feel bad for the Welling and uh, Cardiff game. Stephen Jonah getting split up. <laughs> yeah, Steve, is that right? Will you will you have to sort of split your results for those two? Oh, I think we're going to have to. Oh. <laughs> You've got a choice. Can't, think... can't you give the players their kit in a rucksack? Like, old can you imagine? Football. Sort yourself out, son. Can you imagine that? <laughs> That'd be unbelievable. No, who I think be, who would you, be think... if you? All right, so give it to me here, Steve. Who would be utterly lost if you sent them off with a with a rucksack and a pack lunch? Who, who, oh, would, wow. who, who would who would struggle the most? Do you think? That's a tough one. Probably Ellis. 
<laughs> Can you elaborate? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but no, that's going to be a fun day. That I think I'll probably end up going to Worthing, if I'm honest. Yeah, that day yeah. by the coast, quite right. Yeah, why not? Eh? So, um, yeah, so obviously that's our, our pre-season lineup, but then we've also had um, over the course of this week, um, we've had the resumption of the um, uh, the conference final yes. sorted with Grimsby um, triumphing at the London Stadium, which means that League Two is going to be made up as follows: we have got AFC Wimbledon, Barrow, Bradford, Carlisle, Colchester, Crawley Town. Crew Alexandra, Doncaster Rovers, Gillingham, aforementioned Grimsby, Harrogate, Hartlepool, Leighton Orient, Mansfield, Newport, Northampton, Rochdale, Salford, Stevenage, Stockport, Sutton, Tranmere, and last but not least, Warsaw. So we've got we've got some miles to clock up. I mean, Chris, you you must be happy as Larry, mate, based in your uh, based up north. You've um, you've got some cracking away days, haven't you? Well, it, it depends on um, what days I get off work, but. Um... But the away days are good, but uh, obviously home days, not so much because a home day is a 400-mile round trip. Uh, come on, don't give me... I don't want your excuses, pal. You you, you do a Vic... Just take great inspiration from the wonderful Vic Morgan. You clock up those miles, pal. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I mean, but are, are you going to join me, me and Dan at, at Doncaster? Oh, a million percent. A million percent. Don't you worry about that. Well, I tell you what. The, I mean, for me, from a southeast point of view, I'm I'm happy as Larry. We're going to be uh, renewing old rivalries with um, our friends just across the London Kent border at uh, in Medway at Gillingham. Um, we've obviously got Crawley, Sutton, uh, AFC Wimbledon, uh, Leighton Orient, Stevenage. Um, there's plenty of games for me to be sort of sinking my teeth into. But from a Swindonian point of view, it's it's quite a trot. I mean, Nathan, I was going to punt this punt this one at you. You've you've got to really clock up the miles this year, haven't you, mate? Home and away. Wow, I mean, it's not too bad, but obviously for me, next year it's going to be a tough one with uh, having a, a baby due in July. So um, I really don't know how much I can do next season <laughs> at all. So, uh, I'll listen I, I... to you. It's excuses, excuses. Nathan <laughs> and Chris, you're both as bad as each other. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll dismiss you both out of hand. Joe Vincent, bring some bring some sense back into this debate. So, Joe, what's um, what's what's it looking like for you, mate? What's your uh, what's your your uh, roadmap looking like next year? Are you happy or are you feeling a little desperate? I'm not gonna lie to you, mate. It looks disgusting on paper. It, it looks horrendous. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I've not done the miles, but it's got to be thousands. It's all up north, isn't it? It's, it's literally the EFL north this season. Well, like I said, to be totally frank, mate, South South East is not too bad for me. You're certainly yeah. in and around the sort of greater London area. I'm 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 quite happy with away days, and and every home game's an away game for me as well. So listen, I'll, I'll you know I'm I'm quite happy, um, but a lot of people of an SN1 persuasion quite clearly aren't. <laughs> but um, but we can have, well, we, can have a, um, we can have a couple of couple of good days out in the London, a couple of good days out in Manchester. Yes, yes, and then one in Carlisle to finish it off. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we absolutely will have a the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge um, themed away day or three, I would imagine, at some point this season. But then we've also got one of the fixtures that I'm overlooking is um, 
and it doesn't seem to have necessarily sort of hit, you know, hit hit everyone's um, uh, Twitter feeds or promotional lines, whatever it is you want to call them. Sunday, third of July at the Webswood Stadium, Swindon Supermarine are going to be taking on a Swindon Town um, Legends eleven, and I'm reliably informed that's going to include Paul Caddis. And Charlie Austin is going to be there. Whether he's going to be in kit or not, we're not quite sure yet. But um, it looks like all proceeds are going to the NSPCC. So um, do pencil that into your diaries. Sunday, the 3rd of July uh, at the Webswood Stadium, home of uh, Marine, where they're going to be taking on a Swindon Town FC um, Legends 11. The, the more information that I get on that, and hopefully uh, the good people at Marine may well be listening in on this. If they want to send me some details through, I will make sure that I promote it. And I will promote it, ladies and gentlemen, on the new The Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge Twitter page, which launched today to great fanfare. It's been a busy day, Chris, hasn't it? Oh, it has been as well. But And also, I think that Rachel said that she was going to come on and speak, but she hasn't done it yet, has she? No, she hasn't. She hasn't. I keep, every time we do a show, I often try and, in fact, look, let's have another go. Rachel, if we can get you on to just come on and say hello, you'll make Chris's day, and you'll certainly make mine. So come on and say hello. But yeah, we've had um, so um, we've had the launch of the Sir Tom, Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge Twitter page. Now, the way it's going to work, guys, is that the the page itself will be where we will host um, shows off. So at the moment, we are hosting them off the London Reds, my personal Twitter space. Uh, it's where the show's established itself. When we get it up to a stage where we've got a kind of comparable sort of uh, audience uh, group. I will migrate the shows over to the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge page. Um, but there's also another really good reason for doing that. It's going to be a very, very important season for our, our little project. Um, keep an eye open for all kinds of exciting stuff that's going to be happening over the course of this next season. We'll be introducing merchandising. Um, we will be working very, very closely um, with um, the guys that were behind the Great Wrestling Reds on events. So you've seen today that we're doing our inaugural Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge six-a-side tournament that's going to be at Foundation Park. Um, so um, we're going to... It, there are also plans afoot for um, pre-season, post-season barbecues or last game of the season barbecues as before and a whole host of other things that we're going to be doing. Um, you, you'll be aware that we're working very closely with our friends at Verilogic and indeed Dan Designs on some brilliant merch giveaways which we're going to be doing. Which leads me to the the big pool for today. Into as I reach over into my uh, my silky bag here, full of names uh, of people that have um, gone over, liked, <laughs> retweeted, and um, um, and generally supported that migration over today. So I'm going to pull a piece of paper out of this bag uh because glenn richards glenn richards you are the winner of the personalized that's a limited edition sir tom broadbent lounge hoodie so congratulations glenn um glenn drop us a dm with your details we'll make sure that you are furnished with those now what better way to finish the show than introducing the wonderful Rachel, who I've never heard speak before. Oh, so this God. is going to be intriguing. Good okay. evening, Rachel. Hello. Sorry, I've got a watermelon face mask on in bed, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't really have much to say, but Chris keeps saying I need to talk, so there you go. <laughs> oh, I love it's this a show. delight it's to nice finally to have you on, Rachel. Fantastic. Rachel, how are you feeling? Fantastic to finally hear you, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> no person. No, it's nice listening to the show. I do listen regularly, so... Uh, yeah. Yes, we know, Rachel. Every show you're on, we try and get you talking. But um, 
round round us off, Rachel. Round us off quite nice. We're going to get you back on for a proper show further in the distance. But um, you know, how how are you feeling about the next sort of like week or two ahead? Are you feeling buoyant, or have you been swept away in a in a in, in the I don't know the downward spiral of social media negativity? No, I feel really positive now. Actually, as you were saying earlier, it's it's miles away from where we were last summer. Um, I just want it sorted. You know, I I hate all the uncertainty. So. Um, Thank God it was announced that Ghana's going. I think um, we all knew a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? So just when it sorted. But now I'm positive, really positive. Just want to get back into it, really. I'm not worried. I'm not worried at all. I think we're going to have a good season. Neither should you be, Rachel. No, I think hopefully good. if anyone's taken anything away from the show, yeah, there's like, there's always stuff to debate. It's, it's all part of the charm of following Swindon Town, isn't it? But I think generally, you know, we... You know, we we as, as I've said before, uh, in the thirty odd years that I've been following the club, certainly for twenty of those, we have been battered and bruised. But now is we've never had a better time to hit the reset button um, in terms of our maybe our expectations. Um, you know, we've got we've clearly got a guy behind the club now owning the club that he's he's delivered everything that he said he was going to deliver. Um, he's had a. Um, He's had a, 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 obviously an unforeseen set of circumstances with his manager. I think whilst we've not had any official comment, I, I think we would have known um, if the if the if he knew that the wheels were going to come off in the manager's office. But it it all appears. I mean, from what I understand, Clem's, Clem's remaining in the country for a while yet. Um, I've heard that Clem could be in the country for until the seventeenth. Um, I don't know if there's any truth on that, and I'm sure we can get that confirmed elsewhere. But um, you know, it's not it's not like you know he's he's down tools and, and disappeared off. So. Um, it's going to be an interesting few days. Well, look, it's half past 11. We've been on for two and a half hours. Um, and I think if there, if there is a time to um, to finish now, is that time. Um, my thanks to Chris, uh, to Steve, to Rachel, to Nick, Max, Joe, uh, Nathan for coming on. Uh, for Alex, for his rather unusual um, uh, little impromptu, um, sort of what I think was probably a drunken hello. Um, and, uh, yeah, we look ahead to next week now. Well, that's very exciting news next week's show. Very, very exciting news. The legend that is Fraser Digby is joining us on next week's show, ladies and gentlemen. Fraser Digby. Just let those two words sink in. Um, 12, 13 odd seasons, um, right the way through the leagues um, uh, at Swindon Town. Um, so excited that Fraser's going to be coming on to join us. Um for many, many people, is one of the greatest icons of our club. And I cannot wait, both from a former goalkeeping perspective myself, through to somebody that just stood there and essentially grew up whilst watching Fraser um, uh, keep nets for us. Um, cannot wait for Fraser to be on next week. And I know he's super excited to be coming on. Um, the content of the show, um, we are going to be talking about the best of everything. Um, and we have, we are going to be talking about his best saves, his best memories, his best roommates, the whole nine yards. We're going to have a lot of fun with Fraser next week. So do make the point of um, sticking that in your diary. Next Wednesday, 9pm, barring any disasters, we'll have Fraser on with us. Um, suffice to say, the Sir Tom Broadbent Lounge is a Swindon Town fans Twitter space. Um, its uh, re reviews are very much our own, do not re represent those of Swindon Town Football Club or Tom Broadbent himself. Um, uh, absolute, absolutely chuffed to have you all with us tonight, guys. Have a very, very safe week. Fingers crossed we'll have some news in the next couple of days. And if we do, the chances are we'll probably have another show before Fraser next week. But for now, that will do us nicely. Take